Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, welcome on to a glamour episode of the Dunked On Season Outlooks with one Anthony V. Slater of The Athletic. We're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors, uh, our hometown team. What's going on, man? How are you? You are you were contractually obligated to put that V in there, so I appreciate that. Um, is this the story of the league in the early season? I mean, like, obviously, I cover it on a daily basis. You're around it, so maybe there's we have, you know, a tinge of a bias as far as, like, what we're following. Um, but, I mean, you mentioned it in the lead, and this does feel like you know, the team that I think a lot of people have their eyes on league-wide entering the season. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, Although without, if Clay were back already, I I might agree with you on that. I I think the Nets and whether they're going to be fully healthy and then Russell Westbrook joining the Lakers, that that, especially the Westbrook Lakers thing, that's probably going to be the biggest thing of of how they mesh uh, together. But yeah, I mean, it is going to be really interesting here. And maybe the place we can start talking about the Warriors is with their news release yesterday on the returns of James Wiseman and, of course, uh, Clay Thompson. Yeah, uh, the Clay release was no news, essentially. I mean, we've known yeah. for a while. Look, he tore his Achilles. People forget just because of how condensed the season is. There's this idea that it's, he's now past a year, essentially. Uh, no, he tore his Achilles like November 22nd, something like that. It was actually draft morning, the day they right. drafted James Wiseman, which is now two drafts ago, but that still is not yet a full calendar year ago. Uh, and he had surgery November 25th. So, you know, especially he's not only coming off the Achilles, he is coming off an ACL, which was fully healed. He was looking good. They were hoping he was going to play opening night last season. But at the same time, I believe it's now 831 days since he's played an NBA game. Uh, The expectation is, you know, I think we're talking probably mid-December at the earliest, maybe January. Uh, It's a floating target, uh, and it will depend on how the final stages of his rehab goes. But they've been planning for a while to not have him the first month, two months, three months, potentially. Yeah, but the thing that, as you started to allude to, that's a little more impactful was... James Wiseman particularly because he plays a position where they really didn't fortify much if at all during the offseason yeah uh you know they're the messaging and in, in Bob Myers exit interview from the season and, and Steve Kerr really in the middle of the summer was kind of a hopeful like he, he he might be ready for camp and and now it's like well they've known it was going to be six months until he couldn't you know start fully jumping and participation in camp like he's technically is will be participating in camp doing individual drills and controlled type stuff but i mean he's not going to have full practices they sounds like 
the earliest he might be able to get into full contact type practice is October 15th. They open the season October 19th. He's going to miss some portion of the early part of the schedule. And I think, you know, even bigger than that, it's not that, hey, they might miss James Wiseman for 10 games. It's more, this guy has never had an NBA training camp. I mean, he's never had an NBA summer league. He's now missed both his summer leagues. He had COVID uh, right at the start of training camp last year, didn't play in one preseason game. He's clearly not going to have any full training camp practices or preseason. And, and for a young center who not only is a young center, he probably had like the least amount of college experience of like any you know top young center in the last decade or so. Uh, it's just he he's behind the developmental curve. Yet, like you said, I mean, if you look at the center depth chart, the expectation was he was going to get a, a large chunk of minutes this season. Although I do think they're that they're in a more settled situation there than people might think because they're looking at traditional centers and the reality is I don't think the Warriors are going to play that you know they're they're going to play small a ton this year maybe more than anyone in the league yeah and that's the irony right is is that for years and years that people said all right they don't play Draymond at center enough and they basically have no choice but to do that now and in the Danny and I talked pretty extensively a few days ago about this team and the over under those before this Wiseman news came out and I thought hey you know if Wiseman's gonna be ready at the start of camp maybe he could still start at center because you know it's so difficult I think with Looney and Draymond together starting uh, when neither of them can shoot at all and so do you have kind of an understanding of just like why it is that they seem fine now all of a sudden playing so much Draymond Green that's I mean like the roster just is dictating that like it's going to have to happen for at least 20-25 minutes a game why are they okay with that now and they weren't before it's purposeful number one number two they played their best basketball last season without a center you know they there was a maybe 12-13-14 game stretch in the middle of the season where Wiseman sprained his wrist Looney I believe he had like a bad ankle uh, turn and like they Marquise Chris had broken his leg early in the season so you think the center depth is bad now they they went like 12 games with zero traditional centers on the roster had an open spot at the time and you know we're questioning the front office and steve kerr on pretty much on the daily like are you thinking of adding a center and they're like no we're good i mean Juan toscano anderson's kind of doing his job i think they believe draymond green in the more modern style game uh it's is not really overly taxed at that position and and you know because i mentioned jta uh he there was games they played utah i remember and i believe they didn't have a center and jta was like boxing out rudy gobert and and was handling some of the rudy gobert assignment and i think they believe he can take on some of that physical taxing and and jta is going to be a heavy part of the rotation i'm looking right here him and draymond on the court together were plus 142 in 524 minutes this season i just think they came to the realization in the middle of last season and then after wiseman gets hurt late and we can talk about it you know if we look back how good they were the last 20 games uh, that they're just better in this style and the way they're trying to attack this season with kind of like a this is one of their last chances at a potential title uh, in the in the Curry really the Draymond era I'm talking about I think they're willing to kind of overtax Draymond if you really believe he does get overtaxed at the five and and I'm not sure they even really believe that as much anymore yeah it's really fascinating and maybe a part of why this is now a necessity because you would think hey if they weren't willing to play him that way uh, you know when he was 26 because it was too taxing now he's 31 it's it's not too taxing anymore uh so uh, that never made sense to me but i do think number one maybe there's just an understanding that like dream on green obviously has to play for this team but you just can't have another non-shooter next well, to him actually i know that minutes. 
I know that that it, Steve Kerr has like that is his opinion. Like two non shooters in 2021 on the court together is like really rough to try to like cultivate even an average offense. And you know what? They're probably going to start two non shooters still because I still expect Draymond to start at four and Kevon Looney to start at five. But I do, you know, it's why they brought Bielitsa in. We talk about you know centers that they brought in. Bielitsa isn't a traditional big, but I think they liked him as an option much more than they liked you know a more of a banger like an Aaron Baines type coming in. Even though Baines kind of does stretch it out, but you know it's it, not only that. I mean, you if we look back at their season last year, they're twenty four and twenty eight, or actually twenty. I think they were twenty three and twenty eight the day Wiseman got injured. They win that game, but if we group that game into their last twenty, they go fifteen and five. They had the best net rating in basketball the last twenty games of the season, and uh, even going into the play, and they almost beat the Lakers, and then uh, you know m- the the lost files of me and you uh, the night uh, that they played the Grizzlies. We uh, we previewed their first round series against the Jazz before the game. They obviously lose that, so it is a disappointing end to overall what was a disappointing season from just organizationally for many reasons. But that it's kind of forgotten how good they were those last twenty games and why they were that good was because of how much Draymond was playing really with at times trying to get four shooters around him or if not four shooters at least like four ball movers and just a non center. So. You know, it's interesting, right? I mean, I, they definitely were really good. Obviously, it's easy to be better with, you know, some of the league uh, at least not really trying, but they also had some very nice wins uh, during that period, to be sure. And they had a very nice defensive group uh, as well. And, you know, when Draymond was playing center, over a 120 offensive rating, you know, best in the league type of level, uh, that certainly unlocks Steph uh, the most to play that way. But at least for me, and maybe you disagree, it did seem like something during that period was unsustainable i thought some of the discussion from the coaches and players after the memphis loss was hey you know we ran out of gas and so now they had an eight-man rotation they'll at least be able to play more of these small dudes uh assuming that everyone is healthy uh but you know i mean it's still incredibly reliant playing that way uh on Draymond I mean I think if you're when Draymond is out of the game you know it it could be kind of difficult too especially because Looney is so bad uh, offensively now uh, as well um and you know if JTA is going to be the center I mean maybe Wiseman will give them something but I mean it's again as you alluded to it's going to be difficult for him to really contribute again due to just the lack of experience I, I just really have a lot of concerns about them wearing down I didn't think that organizationally they're going to actually try and play that way over the course of a full season it'll be really exciting i think when everyone is healthy but i it just seems like guys might wear down a little bit uh, too much over the course of a season to play that way and then i guess i guess the question is just you know is everyone going to be healthy at the end because i do think playing that way they could be very dangerous in the playoff yeah i mean look they're gonna get pounded on the glass they were one of the worst rebounding teams in basketball last year they, they're gonna remain that way uh, when they play teams like hey opening night they're playing the lakers like the physicality of the lakers going against those small warriors lineups will be something to watch uh they're i think they're going to be vulnerable there you probably are relying too much on the health of of 31 year old draymond green now who didn't have a quiet summer he went to tokyo he played in the olympics like you know if he shows to be on his last legs if he shows to be aging maybe a bit more than he did at least defensively last season uh they're not a title contender at all they're not even close to the conversation if draymond takes a dip but i think you mentioned it within there part of the reason they wore down last year at the end of a covid season which was wearing on everybody i think uh they they only had eight 
healthy players at the time. Clay Thompson obviously did not play at all uh, in some of their depth behind. I mean, you know, you had the Smiley Geats roster spot and, and some of the other stuff, the mistakes at the margins, really, we can call it. Um, and they didn't fill two roster spots late in the season for to save a luxury tax. This season, while some of the roster spots, I don't, I'm not sure are going to lead to winning, I do think there's going to be a, a handful of like Jonathan Kaminga energy minutes and you put him on the floor, you know, in a certain game or certain parts of the game and he kind of just juices up the energy on the floor and maybe saves some wear and tear. Maybe you lose a particular game or maybe you use him uh, in a game where you feel like you're going to win regardless because you're playing, you know, whatever, the Detroit Pistons at home, something like that. Uh, I And I do think they're a bit deeper, at least to enter the season. You, you Now, Otto Porter, his health uh, is a concern. I think he's kind of a swing player at the end of the rotation. Iguodala, who I'm sure we'll talk about, is back. And, you know, how do, I, I'd almost like to get your opinion on how he looked in his Miami years because I didn't follow it as much, but I know the decline. I mean, he was kind of at a heavier decline late in his Warriors tenure, and that was about two years ago. But, you know, they're relying on, on I think, smarter players this year and a, and a fuller, you know, rotation. But at the same time, I think there's there's greater injury concerns. No, I, I think that's right. And, yeah, again, I mean, if they just had more of a backup for Draymond, just to, you know, even if you're going to play him 20 or 25 minutes a game at center, it's just, a, all right, is he going to play 35 minutes a, a game at center, right? That's where, where it kind of uh, potentially, because I mean, he's that, the guy I'm worried about wearing down. I, yeah. Obviously, Steph, too. But I, I think th- they I'm less concerned about Steph wearing down than about him wearing down, I, honestly. But um, Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, Steph has shown to be one of the best conditioned athletes at basketball. Now, if, you know, if Steph steps wrong, uh, it twists an ankle. If he, you know, last year he missed what I think it was like nine games, and eight of those missed games were because he fell onto a stair and, and cracked his tailbone. Essentially, like, yeah. there's freak accidents. Obviously, you remember the one a couple years ago where Aaron Baines lands on him, crunches his hand. If something like that happens, disaster strikes for the Warriors. I mean, you don't have Steph Curry for a long stretch. You're probably not making the playoffs. Um, but Draymond, you're right. It's more to me. It's not even just hey, he might miss some games. It's like if if it's a low energy Draymond Green, it's like a that really like handcuffs a team like Draymond Green at his best compared to Draymond Green at his worst is like there might be a bigger gap than anyone in the league as far as like well it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Westbrook right if you're watching a really good yeah. Westbrook night you're like man he's taking over the game he's basically willing this team to win if it's a bad Westbrook night you're like he's basically like guaranteeing a loss tonight so let's kind of go through it here um talk about some of the the new additions to this team and there's been more turnover i think than kind of people realize um so who let's put it this way here who do you think of the newcomers we could throw the rookies in there too who do you think is going to play the most out of all the new guys that they brought in so you got porter iguodala bielitsa moses moody and kuminga are probably you know i guess chris chios on a two-way as well but those are the five guys really that 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 are new this year who do you think plays the most minutes out of all those guys it's a good question and maybe you start at the top of the list you know with the veterans and Iguodala not in the regular season I don't think and I think that'll be purposeful uh you know the limit his minutes Bielitsa I you know so Bielitsa had an interesting situation with Sacramento last season where I think uh, he wasn't he was unhappy with the fact that Marvin Bagley was playing ahead of him or really the last (laughs) two I I would have been unhappy too if I were yeah so the last couple seasons and it kind of I guess somewhat like kind of forced his way out of there essentially got to Miami and I guess he just wasn't in like Miami heat type shape he he they also brought in Dwayne Dedman and Dwayne Dedman basically took the spot that Bielitsa was hoping to have it did not go well there so I mean yes Bielitsa theoretically provides something that if he's just hitting 40 
two percent of his threes, forty percent of his threes, whatever. He, you know, this is the way to to maximize Draymond Green in a sense, put a really accurate stretch five, and maybe he will get plenty of minutes. But at the same time, there's probably a reason the Sacramento Kings didn't play him that much. The Miami Heat wanted to play Dwayne Dedman over him, so I'm I don't really think it's going to be him. I think he's going to be kind of a specialist, and there'll be games I yeah. think he's getting DMPs. So uh, I don't think to me it's it's on Porter's health. If Porter is healthy, he is of the five newcomers that you're talking about with a guy that I think should be more of like a 20, 25 minute per night regular if he looks good. But at the same time, I mean, I watched the, the tape of him on the Bulls last season and a little bit on the Magic. He could barely run. Uh, you know, he had a back injury. I mean, he was going through a lot physically and you, we really haven't seen a good Otto Porter in a couple of years. So the answer to the question might be the rookies and, and we can get into them. You know, they're two, they're both lottery picks, but in very different ways. You know, Kaminga is the seventh overall pick with this, you know, potentially explosive floor as like maybe five years from now he's emerging into a star wing but at the same time will probably be very will will negatively affect winning a little bit like Wiseman this season but you still want to get him minutes either in Santa Cruz or at times with the Warriors this season and Moody he's the 14th pick lower ceiling uh pro you know their hope is he can step in right away and be a rotation piece I'm trying to kind of pump the brakes a little bit on that he still is 19 years old he has some foot speed concerns and there will be some adjustments to the league um, but if Otto Porter isn't healthy, I mean that does. And the fact that Clay Thompson's out early in the season, Moses Moody would, if he can prove capable, and and I love to get your perspective on him because uh, I know you watch him a bunch in your summer league. Like he does profile as a guy that could step in and maybe even as a rookie, like just give twenty solid minutes per game. Yeah, you never want to count on a rookie, particularly on a veteran team. I mean, has there ever been a rookie in since they've been good who really stepped in? I mean, Draymond was really the only one, right? Who, well, who you know really who I would compare Moody to a little bit. He's like kind of like Patrick McCaw to me. Remember, you know, McCaw yeah. like was really kind of trying to push for minutes. He was playing kind of a smart Steve Kerr style and even had some nice moments in the finals, but he still struggled to get like regular minutes. Yeah. And I would imagine that Damian Lee just to, as a veteran and you know, Lee will probably shoot it better than me. I think that ultimately, you know, if Moody can knock down shots and execute defensively that then maybe he'll be in the mix i think honestly that kaminga given the issues that we've talked about i think kaminga is going to play all of his minutes at either the four or the five and like he has a path to playing time if he and maybe that's just as kind of an energy big off the bench at this point in time uh, but uh, you know I, and i don't see him necessarily playing center but it's kind of just we're going to play try to play a couple of more athletic guys together as at the four and five like they need what he theoretically could bring if he's in kind of more of an energy athleticism role because they have very very little athleticism outside of wiseman at the four and five positions yeah um, i could i could definitely yeah. see like particularly on like a night like maybe draymond green's not playing or he's not playing that well like just some like kaminga jta like energy lineups because you know Kaminga, he showed in summer league. He showed a lot of, of of flaws and positives in the summer league. But one thing that I thought impressed me was like he's just he's he's high energy. He's physical. He's downhill at all times. Uh, and if you just like toss that in a game for twelve minutes when maybe you're you know underdogs anyways because you don't have Draymond Green that night. Maybe you're f- facing you know whoever the Clippers something like that. Maybe he can just have one of those nights where, where, where his energy in the middle of a, of a long NBA season gets him twelve points on just powerful downhill drives and you could play him in a lineup that's essentially you you might call him the five you might call him the four jta will probably guard a center if a center's even out there um but but he he fits to me in small lineups coming on the floor with the center out there it might get very clunky 
Well, and also he just, in summer league, I mean, he shows that he doesn't even really like know how to get into a stance and like slide with guys defensively, right? I mean, his, his defensive fundamentals have so far to go. And so I, I think like he's going to get chances, I think because of just uh, particularly before Wiseman comes back. But it's also hard for me to see him really contributing positively. So I could see them getting off to a, a little bit of a slow start here. But, you know, they still do have, have Andrew Wiggins at that position who's going to play 35 minutes a game probably. And So you know, how long they, it yeah. took us over 20 minutes to mention Andrew Wiggins, max player Andrew Wiggins' name. That's, yeah, that just it's interesting. Well, we haven't really talked about Steph Curry or, no, or, no, or at Jordan, least we mentioned Jordan Poole at all either, right? Yeah, but uh, you, you know, that's I mean, but Wiggins is kind of that's the role that he took on him, sort of that solid guy who guards the other team's uh, best player, and you know, he'll have some good games and some bad games shooting the ball, but you know, was relatively. I mean, to think of him as a steady presence, that's not something that Wolves fans would have thought we'd be saying about him a, a couple of years ago. He never gets hurt, so uh, you know, just kind of penciling him. In in for 35 minutes at the small forward position that does have some solid value particularly uh, for these guys yeah it's got probably like 15 million per year type value in the nba now he gets about i think what's he getting this year like 32 um but yeah that's a that's a story for a wider scope view at, at the state of the warriors not a, necessarily this season's team he is helpful he was good defensively last year i think he got a couple of votes for like all defense second team i was not one of those votes i wouldn't say he's like a, a top four defensive wing in the league but you know, you could the, the fact that he was in the honorable mention category, I think, is somewhat worthy. I mean, there were nights where, where you know, like if you look at Bradley Beal's uh, shooting percentage against the Warriors last season, it was really lower in some of the other stars in the league. And remember, the Warriors were the fifth best defense in basketball last year. Uh, and a lot of that was like Wiggins kind of was like stopper is too strong, but reliable uh, on on perimeter scores. He's good in one on one settings. He, he, he bounces laterally quick. He's long um, and he he seems to to like take on the nightly responsibility of that. He's a he's worse in the in a team setting. He can get back cut. He's not that great a rebounder, but uh, I think what he does on the perimeter defensively, particularly with with Clay Thompson easing his way back into the lineup, uh, is is very valuable to them, even if it's not max valuable. To them. No, absolutely, and just simply the fact that he's not getting killed by those guys. You know, yes, it's not spectacular shutdown defense, but it's also just we don't need to send emergency help, and that allows the rest of the scheme to operate around him. Let's uh, Draymond freelance a, a little bit more so yeah that's kind of my big question about these guys uh, they lost kelly Oubre this year but most of the guys who really made this very good defense a year ago are returning uh, I, although you know the, yeah I go do, ahead sorry i do worry about the defense a bit more than maybe other people do you know you did lose yeah. Oubre, who was their ball pressure kind of energy guy but also like kent bazemore uh, who's yeah. going down to the lakers like he they kind of tag teamed uh, that essentially where wiggins yes he would he would oftentimes guard the star but there was like 12 minute stretches where it was like hey Bazemore or Uber go pick up the guard full court you know it gets some deflections now Ken Bazemore I think averaged more fouls per per 36 than any um than any wing in the league last year so so there was negatives to both what he and Kelly Oubre who gambled all the time did but part of the reason they were top five defense is because they were kind of a, a disruptive defense and, and now maybe you have some higher IQ defenders that aren't as foul prone that, that you're layering in behind but like Otto Porter looks a little bit slow in his film from the last last couple of years defensively and uh, oh, oh yeah uh, yeah he needs to lose about 
25 pounds from where he was the last few years to be effective again, I would say. Yeah, and, you know, Bielitz is obviously not going to be a positive in his minutes on the floor. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the rookies, and I do think it will be uh, intriguing to watch Kaminga's minutes this year. And once Wiseman comes back, to to see James Wiseman uh, try to make somewhat of a mini leap this year. But the reality is, like, those are going to be mostly negative defensive minutes for the Warriors. So, I, I think they're going to shoot it a bit better. They better hope they're, they they in, improve on their 20th rating defensively last year, even though they had maybe... Uh, uh, offensively, you mean. Yeah. yeah, offensively. Even though they had, you know, uh, one of the, like, a generational offensive talent in, like, maybe his best offensive season, they were still 20th. But So I do see them improving there. I'm not saying they're necessarily going to tumble down the defensive rankings because, I mean, you, there's not very many good defenses league-wide, but I just, I don't think they're going to be as good defensively, personally. Yeah, I think... Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us that's reasonable maybe when clay comes back you might say but on the other hand guys coming back from injury like that they're generally trying to re-establish themselves as an offensive player re-establish what made them a star in the league and you know defense is more you're more reliant on your physicality which is is what gets robbed by your injuries and you know shooting is going to be there so you know you could see clay not really be that good i i don't anticipate that he's going to be their guy who guards point guards now you know so i think that that is a legitimate concern that they're not going to necessarily have so you know Iguodala is probably gonna be a little too slow to do that porter's not gonna do that maybe you go wiggins there but and you put Iguodala on the wing throw but i think even wiggins is you know better on wings than he doesn't have quite as quick a feed as Ubre. Bazemore you know like you said he, he was kind of feast or famine last year forced a lot of turnovers but but also fouled a lot so I think they have a possibility by the end of the year of being as good as they are but they're going to be playing as many or more young guys as well their bench defense last year their bench offense was terrible their bench defense was actually good in like the first half of the year before the jordan pool shout out brad wanamaker there he goes yes um but but i think i think the offense is gonna be way better uh, this year do you agree with me yeah, well, I mean, first, to, to your earlier point that you were laying out there, it's why I kind of like Gary Payton the second for their open 15th roster spot that they're supposedly going to have a camp competition for, uh, which will include uh, some veterans, including some that they're trying out this week. But I just think Payton 
provide something that they need, which is the type of ball pressure you're talking about and ability at times to, hey, look, Damian Lillard is just going off. Go get six minutes of picking him up full court. Uh, so I, I, I do like Peyton there. Uh, as far as the offense, yes, I think they're going to spread the floor better. I think the fact that they seem committed to going smaller more often. I mean, if you if you look at their offensive splits last season, I mean, like Steph Curry and Draymond Green on the floor together without a center compared to when they had a center on the floor, it, they're they they're like basically a, a, the difference between like a top 10 offense and a bottom 10 offense so if they just you know juice up those type of minutes which i do think they are over the course of the season uh, they should naturally just be a better offense plus just some of some of the players they brought in like you're not going to necessarily say Andre Iguodala and Otto Porter are better offensive players than Kelly Oubre and Kent Bazemore, but they're better offensive players in Steve Kerr's system than Kelly Oubre and Kent Bazemore are, and better offensive players around Steph Curry, considering what Steph Curry kind of needs around him and, and the style of play, which is about as unique as uh, as any offensive system in the league. So I just think it fits better this year, and that should lead to better offensive rating. Yeah, so uh, the numbers, just so we have them here, Steph Curry on the floor, 114 offensive rating. Steph Curry off the floor, 102 offensive rating for for this team. And Brad Wanamaker was uh, right, right a big part of that, 103.4. Now, they weren't a ton better when they went to Jordan Poole uh, as the backup point guard, but they can't be, you know, especially if they're putting B elites out there. I don't know. I, I think it's possible that the bench offense is as bad as it was last year but i don't think it's gonna be quite as bad but really you're putting a lot on jordan Poole. maybe if it's him and clay thompson playing together once clay comes back that could start to get pretty respectable again if they have a, a decent amount of spacing with that second group but in the early part of the season when it's jordan Poole and I, now they're gonna try you know kaminga and moody you're gonna play some minutes right and then you throw maybe wiseman and kaminga together at times in there as well like because like those guys are gonna play some right like they're they're not gonna just sit i mean they're gonna at least need to prove that they can't play before they say okay jonathan kaminga you're on the santa cruz plan yeah i think i mean you mentioned his name a few times in there but jordan Poole might be like the, the underrated swing factor of their whole season he's probably going to start he enters training camp as the likely replacement starter for clay thompson until clay thompson comes back the expectation yep. early on is he's probably going to get about 25 30 minutes a night and i think it's it's a worthy experiment for the warriors because of what he showed in late in his second season I mean, we're talking about a guy that is a rookie that looked like maybe, you know, a, a bottom five rotation player in the league. Basically, they forced him into the lineup because of injuries. And this is on the 15 and 50 team. And a lot of people had given up on him. And it, it even seemed early in the season when they sent him to the G League bubble that it just wasn't going to work out as a 28th overall pick which you know that's okay with the 28th overall pick it's it's kind of uh you know you're going for a swing a lot of times you strike out but came back from the bubble kind of exploded offensively in the second half of the season and I think what gives them encouragement is, is not even just the second half of the season the stretch run when we that was the highest stakes basketball they had played I mean I mentioned them going 15 and 5 down the stretch but that included 6-0 and on a homestand late in the season that took them from 33 and 33 to 39 and 33 it clinched them uh the seed it got him into the two play-in games Jordan Poole was like great in those eight games like he played sure. well in all eight games that includes they had home wins over the Jazz and Suns who were the one and two seed and they were still jostling so they played all their players Jordan Poole had 20 points off the bench both nights in 20 minutes and 19 minutes so it was kind of like that explosive uh you, you know bench score that they really need when, when Clay Thompson's back but also he got a spot start and he scored 38 points against the Pelicans uh, and then if you just think about the play-in game I mean in the 
the most frantic moments of the season, and, and that's against the Lakers and Staples as they're trying to hold on, and he, you know, pulls, uh, trying to dunk on LeBron, which people probably remember. But even in the Grizzlies game, the only reason they drag that game to overtime is because Jordan Poole makes a really smart uh, alley oop pass. Andrew Wiggins, he hits a couple big threes in that game. Uh, he was a closer, and I think he earned. Actually, I know he earned Draymond Green and Steph Curry and Steve Kerr's trust, and he did not have Steve Kerr's trust prior to midseason last year, and he's earned it. And to the point that uh, you know a lot of these answers we're talking about, where do they get bench offense? Where do they get some some scoring and spacing alongside Steph Curry at times? How do these small lineups work? Uh, how do they get better offensively? I think a lot of it is just a Jordan Poole year three leap. Like their hope is leap into most improved player of the year conversation. You know, probably not winner, but you know a guy yeah. that when we're talking about that award late in the season, you're like, hey, how about what Jordan Poole's done in, in Golden State? So if that happens, they look different. If it doesn't happen, a lot of these answers you know they're 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 misses for them no i i that's right because they really they got two guys in their rotation who can dribble it's Steph curry and jordan pool it's basically you know when i say can dribble all right you know draymond green and, and andre Iguodala can dribble the ball up the floor but if you're talking about someone that you can actually put the ball in their hands and they can run a pick and roll or be expected to make a play and collapse the defense that Steph curry and jordan pool that's kind of it so yeah they are really really reliant on him um they don't really, you know, other than Chris Chioza, who will probably get some tick, but he's on a two-way. Uh, they're not really going to have any other options. But still, you know, even looking at the stats now, Jordan Poole on the floor, Steph Curry off. 103 basically offensive rating very very poor but you know some of those lineups are with a lot of Kevon Looney and so you know I don't know if Looney will play as much with the the second unit he's really a destructive offensive player at this point in time when he's not playing with with Curry but yeah they are going to be really reliant on him maybe once Clay comes back that'll change some Curry uh, and Curry and Poole was their best two-man lineup combo last year. It was 221 yeah. minutes, which isn't a ton, but in those 221 minutes, 117.9 offensive rating, 100 defensive rating, 17.9 net. I mean, don't expect that, but that uh, that lineup data right there informs why Steve Kerr is already basically saying, look, his gut feeling, he said to our Tim Kawakami at The Athletic, his gut feeling is, is Poole will be the starter early on. I think they want to know in the first month, like, do they have like an emerging, you know, a, a guy that has CJ McCollum type capabilities a couple years from now and and that might sound ridiculous to a lot of people um, but there's a lot of belief in that franchise that like something's happening with Jordan Poole like it, it's becoming something bigger than anyone imagined uh, and it, I'm not like I don't think he'll ever be an all-star necessarily but think about what Jordan Clarkson did for the Jazz last season I think Jordan Poole could get to a point maybe not this season but in the next couple where he's doing that type of stuff for the Warriors. Well, and he could pass actually too. I think yeah. that's the one the thing that's very much impressed me. Well, I mean, there are many things that very much impressed me about him because I, like you were alluding to, I was probably lower on him than just about anybody. Uh, and then just he had this incredible breakout where you know he he's a pretty good pick and roll player when he makes the right decision when he gets into the teeth of the defense. He's gotten so much better as a finisher. He can even shoot some shots coming off of screens, either off the dribble or even off the ball in this Warriors system. But yeah, being a he's got to be more than just a pleasant surprise this year so there is a lot of pressure on him but yeah i mean i think he's going to start because like who else is it going to be right they're not going to start Iguodala. damian you know, lee i mean you mentioned earlier damian yeah. lee's like always kind of been like a fill-in kind of placeholder guy and if if kerr decides hey look you just want jordan pool comfortable in his like be- you know heavy bench role but bench role maybe you start damian lee for the first six minutes and then bring pool in like that i guess that'd be the argument yeah i'd be interested i'm interested to see too whether teams start to go after him defensively more like they didn't uh, 
I wouldn't say that he like killed them defensively, but teams also didn't really try to attack him very much. Uh, I felt, uh, and he's he had some negative defensive moments uh, at times, but it just seemed like you know the book is all right. We're going to go after Steph, yeah, and I think Jordan Poole at some point teams are going to start going after him, particularly if the Warriors are playing well and, and, and are he, a little bit more. Yeah, high, and, I mean he's profile. and he, you know he'll be part of much bigger part of the scouting report entering this season. He's he's quick hands, smart defender, knows where to be, a pretty good rotation guy but like he's just kind of thin and at times can uh not try as much on defense I and mean, i remember you know you you, you kind of saying teams didn't do it that much and you're right but i remember a game against the sixers uh when pool had kind of emerged into a 20 25 minute per night guy where they kept getting tobias harris on a switch on him and tobias yep. harris was just going right through him like it was just mid post tobias harris against jordan pool you know three dribbles he's at the rim layup so i do you're you're right there i mean as we talk about uh how they maintain their their place as a top five defense if jordan Poole's going to be playing 30 minutes a night that becomes a little tougher so again we have another guy that we have just not talked about that much and maybe just because he's such a sine qua non for this team that if he's not there as you alluded to or if he doesn't play as well all of this stuff that we're talking about kind of doesn't really matter but steph curry age 32 season turns turned 33 in april just i mean it's just going to go through some of it here 57 percent from two 42 percent from three on 12.7 three-point attempts per game and per 36 minutes 13.4 i'm pretty sure that's an nba record uh led the league in scoring 32 points a game and really just uh one of his best seasons uh, probably his second best overall statistical season i thought actually should have been gotten more mvp buzz than he ultimately did i thought it was actually pretty close to him between him and Jokic. although i eventually went with Jokic. but can steph curry do this again you know i i think it's it health permitting yes he's in really good shape he's kind of you know you talk to the brandon Paynes of the world the you know del curry the people in his circle and they're like his off-season work ethic is like only grown in the last few years and he's only got like he's if you look at his mvp year like highlights of that and then you look at last year like the guy's just bigger and stronger and, and he's finishing better i think that was a very a big key last year like he was finishing through contact much better at the rim then it wasn't always just you know uh, pyrotechnics from 35 feet out i mean there was a lot of of different stuff to, to what he did at the rim and in the paint last year also the off-ball movement he's just like basically mastered the art of, of off-ball movement there was a game against the thunder last season which you know they obviously had all these young defenders that were way in over their element um in that game but the, he was just like deking guys out of their shoes without the ball in his hands. I mean, he was like having guys, he would just take one step this way and guys were flying and uh, just what he does without the ball in his hands and the fact that other stars across the league, very few of them do that. It just makes him such a, a unique and tough cover in a regular season environment where, uh, you know, particularly young defenders, but even like fourth, fifth, sixth year defenders are, are, are spending a road trip out West. Like, all right, I'm, I'm guarding Lillard. I got to worry about the pick and roll. All right. I, you know, I'm guarding LeBron. I got to worry about some of the power stuff when he's got the ball in his hand. Same with Westbrook. And then they get to the Warriors and maybe their minds are trained like, all right, I gotta, uh, I'm facing a starter and I got to worry about like stopping him in one-on-one situations when he's got the ball in his hands. It's like, no, he, all he's, he's going to use like off-ball trick after off-ball trick to just try to get an absolute inch of space. And then that thing is flying 
coming up from deep or he's getting to the rim because you're just way out of position. And sometimes you're double teaming him too much and the Warriors have figured out ways to leverage that uh, to, you know, the Warriors led the NBA in dunks last season. And as you mentioned earlier, they don't have guys that just get to the rim. Like Andrew Wiggins is not just like ripping through and just hammering dunks. It's just the fact that Steph Curry's gravity created the most dunks in the season in the NBA last season because he just does crazy stuff to, to defenses off the ball. And a lot of that, it, it, it's three things. It's it's his cardiovascular and it, it's his, to me his strength now, but also his brain. I mean, he's just, he's just like I said, mastered it off the ball and, and neither of us think his shot is ever going to leave him. So I'm not sure he's going to replicate the numbers he had last season because they're just, I mean, they're outrageous, but I don't see him take you know, barring injury. I don't see him taking like a, a decline really in the next couple of seasons. Yeah, and barring injury, obviously, you know nobody plays more than seventy-two games these days, right? So I mean, I don't expect I don't expect him to at least miss ten. That's kind of like seventy-two games is kind of the new eighty-two uh, in in these last few years. But and and he missed nine games uh, last year uh, out of seventy-two. Um, yeah, because he's always going to be able to run. You know, that's something that you can still do as you get older. Like that cardio fitness that doesn't uh, get lost. You know, the the separation off the dribble uh, out of pick and roll, like that's something that can reduce a little bit. Um, you know, he wasn't he's forty two percent from three. He wasn't forty four, forty five, like he wasn't so his absolute best season. But he was taking more shots even uh, than ever and, and more ridiculous shots than ever. One thing maybe that might cause things to decline a little bit for him is the lack of preparation last year. Probably actually really played into his hands a lot where teams are just coming in they're exhausted they got covid absences you can't even really practice you're you're getting up at 6 a.m for a covid test there's a you know five games and seven nights uh, and so this will be a little bit normal this season there still won't be a ton of preparation but there'll be more at least than there was a year ago and so teams can kind of be locked in and you alluded to like that okc game or like game against houston like yeah the bad teams he's going to completely kill them like that's just what's going to happen if he's going against a team like say the lakers one of these more veteran teams that really knows him well uh and has players who have dealt with him and played against him especially if you've played against him in the playoffs those guys kind of know the drill and they have a way to deal with lebron is a great example lebron every game he plays against the warriors he's like he's reading something the warriors are doing off the ball and then he's jumping a passing lane he's like oh i've seen this slip before oh i've seen what they do with this steph curry action before and you're right and that's i actually do worry more about steve kerr's offense in the playoffs in a playoff setting um and part of the reason i do think they are going to have a better offensive rating this year is because of what you're mentioning and the fact in the regular season a lot of this stuff because it's so different than what other offenses do it just catches so many teams off guard but uh when it gets down to crunch time in the playoffs and teams can scout you on a you know over the, a 10-day period and, and readjust and adjust that's some of that stuff doesn't work and then you kind of need a little bit more kevin durant style hey i'm gonna go get my shot and kevin durant is now andrew wiggins on this roster so uh it, it's a problem yeah. for steve Kerr. man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas i'm going to be freezing but the american giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice 
heavy material that'll keep you warm. It's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us it's offense um anything before we kind of get into like some of the crunch time lineups uh, and stuff is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you think is kind of an underrated factor for this team that maybe people aren't focusing on uh, enough well in your outline you you had a, a section about like what's something you feel strongly about the team that is counter to the national narrative and i do think it's a it's a could be a good topic for us to talk about but it's like i just don't think this trade that 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 sits out there is this like holy grail of like the warriors are going to you know change the power structure in the league with this massive swing for another star uh and just just wait on it wait till bradley beal's available wait till damian lillard's available or this ben simmons talk like i just don't think that's likely to happen i i think it's a lot less likely than i think people around the league expect because i think there's this idea that the warriors are just hoarding these draft picks and hoarding kaminga and wiseman because they want to make this big swing when if you talk to the people in charge particularly the guy at the top joe lakeham in charge he cares about the next decade in chase center and the next era beyond curry beyond draymond beyond clay who you know particularly draymond and, and clay coming off the injury they are aging out and i do think there's a concern of if one of them isn't what they used to be they might need to hit you know uh, acceleration on the rebuild a little bit quicker as possible so it's like I just don't think they're going to use all these assets for a trade. Like, I think some people across the league are kind of like, uh-oh, uh-oh, might the Warriors do it at the deadline? I just think it's very unlikely. Well, the player in question has to become available first, right? I mean, that that's, that's the most important aspect of this. And we may get some more understanding of that uh, within the next couple of weeks if we see whether Bradley Beal signs an extension or not. He's, he's eligible within the, the first week or so of October, uh, on that you know i don't think zach levine's another guy who like might become available uh i don't really see that happening ben simmons i just don't really see the fit so uh, it, it just th- there are just other teams who are gonna be willing to pay more for ben simmons it, you know i just don't see how he ends up uh, on the warriors yeah so if one of those guys does become available and i'm not i agree with you on simmons i just they're not there on simmons um and they've basically kind of ignored th- that idea um but if a Beal or a Lillard or somebody that you, maybe a Levine he's a very good name Draymond I think took a liking to him at the Olympics but if one of those guys becomes available then I think it gets tense around the Warriors I think it, it, we start to talk more about like power structures within the Warriors and and ownership priorities and front office priorities and this this idea of like the bridge to 
the future, as, as Joe Lacob has called it. Or, look, Steph Curry is at the age he's at. Draymond Green, uh, even though he's a little bit younger than Steph, he's probably seeing the writing on the wall a little bit more than others. And, and the fact that they have influential voices uh, you know, in, in the area, in, within the franchise. Steve Kerr, another name in there that I think uh, tilts more towards the win-now hope than, than you know, is Chase Centerfield in 2026 and is Wiseman and Kaminga you know, superstars by then. But if one of those guys, you know, because what you're saying is right, they can all turn to each other right now and go, look, none of them are available, can't do anything. But if it's somewhat on the table and if we, you know, they have to get in the conversations and have to have these tough discussions, I just think it could get really tense around them. Well, it also depends how good those guys are, right? I, I mean, yeah. like if James Wiseman comes out and plays again the way he did last year, then, you know, it's kind of like he, he he almost becomes like a throw in uh, on these things. Maybe maybe it's just they'll continue to believe in him more than any other team and just the other team wouldn't really want him that much. And so he's not even really a piece or maybe if he is a piece, it's more just a as seller matching and Kaminga you know he's young enough that you don't want to draw any massive conclusions from this year but generally if a guy's going to be a future superstar like he's at least going to do something this year at the NBA level that's going to make you feel good about it. he's not going to spend the entire year in Santa Cruz if he is the real deal yeah you know and so what's your opinion like do you what do you think happens with Jonathan Kaminga I mean, obviously this is all subject to change we've only seen him in a summer league but like do you believe he has that superstar upside that the team seems to think yeah you know it's like you said it's like so tough to to gauge this early I I was more impressed with him than I expected to be in summer league with with touch around the rim and just kind of the relentlessness to get to the rim the fact that I remember sitting next to you and they're about to play the the magic or I mean the raptors in summer league and it was like ooh Kaminga against Scotty Barnes tonight I you know I know he went through for a Franz Wagner against the magic but let's see what he does in Scotty Barnes and it was like first play of the game like two power dribbles into Scotty Barnes chest and a layup and you're like geez I, I actually kind of thought Scotty Barnes was going to shut him down a little bit better than that. So there, there is some of that. Now, turnover machine in summer league. Um, de- the defense, I, I think he's he can, at times can be a little airheaded out there. But, you know, he's, he's he was like, what, the youngest player in the draft or one of the top three youngest players in the draft, yeah. something like that. Um, you know, that can't grow. Uh, but, you know, it, I'm not going to sit here and say, look, this guy's going to become Paul George. But yeah, I could see a path like Pascal Siakam, Tobias Harris. Like, I think it's very reachable for him to become that level player with you know whatever percentage chance that you want to say beyond that maybe a 15 percent chance that he he explodes into all-star category and maybe a 15 to 20 percent chance that he's like bust territory Uh, um but i think he showed enough in summer league that you're like oh something is there for sure yeah and i think he's someone who eventually to succeed is going to need to get the ball a lot but with his size and athleticism just what he's able to do off the dribble changing direction there's that one highlight against okc in summer league where he put the guy in his ass and went in and dunked and i have a lot of questions about him but just to have that level of athleticism and ball handling skill is not something that you necessarily see and can he improve his feel in a lot of other areas maybe that that's a huge question mark and you know he might be a guy who does a lot of sexy stuff with the ball and kind of just kills you in other areas due to his lack of feel yeah i could see that happening he's got to get better defensively so uh, i certainly as a number seven pick he was the right pick there and he impressed in summer league but i also am not i would be i'm very very low to predict future superstardom from anybody and so i wouldn't predict for him but yeah i, th- I think the kind of range of probability probabilities you put out there uh, seems to, to make some sense so let's uh let's talk about 
who will be out let's say clay thompson comes back what's the crunch time lineup for this group steph clay wiggins draymond i think you know put them in pen and then you just wonder who the fifth guy is and i mean it's it's obviously going to be at times matchup dependent you have the starting lineup essentially which would be looney out there for some reason and you're like look they're playing against Jokic or something and and you just need looney to be guarding him Uh, although i think they would prefer draymond really in the post so in those situations so i I think looney's very unlikely uh unless he just has a really good season uh i so you start to look at the wings because again i think they're going to want to play small not only a bunch this season but in the most high leverage moments i believe they want Draymond at center so uh, I think your options are Otto Porter if he has a really good season Jordan Poole if he emerges into the type of player they potentially think he could and if like offense is a priority on that night and Poole's hot I think you got to have him on the floor I mean he he looked really good late in the season Uh, and then you have the nostalgia lineup right you have Andre Iguodala sitting in there kind of as your your ace card Uh, it's you know maybe if it's just he tells the training staff that night legs are feeling good i can go for for the final eight minutes of, of a big game and, and and i'll he'll somewhat look his vintage self uh and also there's this idea of, of maybe if they're down three two in a playoff series and and it does feel like maybe the end of the line for this type of warriors era they might just want andre iguodala out there because it's like you know we, we're riding with who we came with and i do think that's part of the reason andre iguodala came back so uh, you know it's different options for different nights but i think those are are the main guys we're talking about and then i mean the complete wild cards would be if if either wiseman or kaminga explode into something that we don't believe they will yet early in their career but if kaminga just like looks awesome by mid to, to late in the season or if if wiseman takes a leap that i don't think either me or you are predicting uh they're possible they could be out there but that's i would say that's kind of the landscape i would throw another name in there and that's uh want anderson oh I you know what i meant to throw him yeah. in there you're right though yeah he, he might be the most he honestly might get the most crunch time minutes of those options i'm saying because to me he is what iguodali used to give them is what they're kind of hoping you know obviously a lesser version but they're kind of hoping a younger jta gives them yeah and we'll see if he can continue to improve uh, his shot which was what kind of made him playable that he would at least take some more shots because in his time in the g league i mean he just was not anywhere close to even the guy that felt okay shooting open shots and yeah i mean he's not the athlete that a prime iguodala was but i could see him being better than porter or iguodala uh, this season potentially with those guys uh, possible health issues his, his but yeah his three-point percentage might be like one of the most important stats of the season for the warriors you know because i think you might have it in front you i think he was around like 37 38 now very low volume and it was not what he had ever shown in the g league or, or before that you know he he's crediting ron adams and aaron miles and, and, and with like he's improved as a three-point shooter but if that's real i think he is your fifth closer but i i could see people being skeptical that it's real yeah he was a 40 percent three-point shooter last year uh, on a pretty limited volume yeah. though that was uh, at uh per 36 minutes only 3.8 per, per 36 minutes also shot 72 percent from two by the way so he's well he, he definitely was, was efficient when he was out there he was the recipient of a ton of those slip cuts i was talking about earlier where steph curry sure. is curling out to the perimeter off the ball taking a screen from juan toscano anderson and two de- steph curry's defender and jta defender jump out at curry because they're so afraid of him and he just slips back door you know catches it from draymond green who always has the ball at the top of the key draymond green i believe was fourth in the nba in assists last year uh and he just bounces it to jta and it's just a dunk and that is why you know it's part of the reason they love to play him because he reads that better than you know pretty much anyone they've had since he would all type player reads that so um it, it's kind of how you see it working with him 
Yeah, he's also a pretty good passer as well. Like, he really just is a smart player who understands. He's five assists per 36 minutes for one. Just kind of understand. And he could, he could throw himself into some turnovers, uh, being a little overzealous on, on some of those back The play-in game, he had some well. bad passes late in that play-in game against the Grizzlies that, that kind of sealed the, their yeah. fate. But um, there was one other thing. As we mentioned all this, I feel like we should probably note uh, they they kind of restructured their developmental coaching staff this summer. Yes. You know, they bring in Kenny Atkinson, who's going to basically share lead assistant duties with Mike Brown, and and Kenny Atkinson obviously has a has a deep history with with, with um, you know player development and, and and juicing up the prospects of some of those younger Nets prospects. And then beyond him, they have now given the director of player development role to Jama Malalela. He comes from Toronto. He's been credited with like Chris Boucher, OG Ananobi, a lot of those you know Pascal Siakam, a lot of those young Raptors players. He was like at the forefront of their kind of developmental plan. He's supposedly a really good organizer and and and, and you know creating plans for these younger players to, to grow. Uh, and beyond that, they they hired Dion Milojevic, um, who is a who is Nikola Jokic's coach in Serbia, and he's kind of more of a big man coach. He will be assigned to James Wiseman. Um, and all, all of this is kind of under that same uh, theme that I'm talking about earlier where like Joe Lacob spent a lot of money on these guys and, and made this a priority this offseason because I their plan moving forward is to really try to speed up the development of these guys and, and usher in that kind of next era and try to try to tie the two eras together as much as possible more than just try to trade these guys. And, and uh, there's pressure in every layer of this organization. This is a hugely pressurized season around the Warriors. And part of that is on the coaching staff because they feel like they've been given developmental reinforcements from from ownership in the front office and how do these young guys look no it's going to be fascinating because if they're not really contenders this year then you probably can just write it off uh, unless some enormous trade happens man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found he looked sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. 
And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Um, any big strengths for these guys that, that we haven't talked about yet? I think we've probably hit on most of them, but anything else that, that hasn't has popped out that we haven't talked Steph about? Steph Curry. Yet? I mean, you know, you have Steph Curry. You, you should contend, and that's part of the you know disappointment of the last couple of years. I think you know we haven't got too much into Clay Thompson and the idea of like what no the swing of what Clay Thompson could be and what you know maybe the expectations are, but how, how an injection of him after like I said he 831 days without an NBA game. By the time he's on the floor, it's probably going to be about a thousand days without an NBA game. Um, he, he says he's going to be you know he's even admitting, and we're talking about one of the more competitive players in the league. Is he's admitting that hey he's going to be eased in with like an 18 to 20 minute type uh, minutes limit probably in his first handful of games and and their hope is by March by April he can get back to playing you know 34 minutes on a regular basis and if needed guarding some of the best players in the league and obviously the shot which is probably the thing I worry about the least but you know a, a guy who can spread the floor better than maybe anybody ever as basically a, a bit player on an offense off the ball if can he be a, just a 44 percent knockdown shooter that that it's unbelievable with some of his off ball technique uh, if he is if he gets back to what are we going to say 75 80 percent of himself sure i mean the equation changes on this team but i also understand every level of skepticism that at least in his first year back coming off those two devastating injuries he's now over the age of 30 uh there's a chance he just isn't and maybe doesn't get back to that and that is just major for the warriors it's probably a, a bigger factor than anything out there Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the way that Steph Curry and Draymond Green played last year, if they repeat what they did and you get Clay Thompson from 2019, this team's a championship contender. Now, that's, I'm not going to say that's impossible. I think it's exceedingly unlikely. I mean, obviously, the spot up shooting is going to be, I, I expect that to be pretty good. I mean, once he gets his rhythm, I think coming off of screens, I think he can still be pretty good there offensively. Uh, you know, I think the the mid range game in the post, if they go to go to him there, uh, should probably be okay using his body. You know, he might come back a stronger player. I mean, he's going to be a three. He's not going to be a two anymore. He's really going to be more of a, a of a three. Uh, but then you know, the ability to get to the basket. Uh, you don't. You know, he's not going to be going in for dunks anymore. And also, just defensively, to stick with smaller players. You know, he's really strong, but he's probably going to be better off guarding. You know, the other team's three than he is going to be guarding. The the other teams won and that's going to be you know they don't want Steph Curry in that role I don't know if Jordan Poole can take on that role so uh, you know I think he could be 75 to 80 percent of what he was offensively but I think really defensively is where that can kind of it, it could kind of fall apart so maybe this is just going to be even more of an offensive team than they were and you mentioned that closing lineup you know if they put Poole as that fifth guy and that's a very very difficult unit to guard and so uh they wouldn't they won't be as good defensively as they were you know five years ago with, with all these guys uh but i think they could be pretty close to what they were offensively at their peak with, with clay you know assuming he's out there and healthy and at least shooting the ball well yeah i mean their prayer on defense in situations like that is like draymond green save us essentially you know yeah. erase but, all but mistakes. even he even he is a little bit different now because like oh yeah even when they played him at center last year they didn't really switch that much you know all right if you're like 
I don't know if they really necessarily want him switching on to a really quick point guard for example you know I've seen him this was more in 2020 but like he's getting torched by guys at the point of attack a little more and he switched like a Luca for example you know I thought he didn't keep up with him quite as well now you know that was in 2020 as well I mean that he was kind of checked out that whole season but oh, yeah uh, you know, and he's still a great help defender at his size also they don't have like any kind of rebounding if, if he's away from them so schematically what they do with him at center I think will, will be interesting well, to watch particularly because yeah go ahead sorry yeah, but he's just not the athlete he used to be I mean there was there right. was series back in I think it was like the 2017 playoffs might have been 18 but they played Portland he had 17 blocks in a four-game sweep and he's right. just flying at the, it's that one people probably are the memorable block where he's it's like a two-on-one fast break and he's guarding I think it was Lillard out at the perimeter and like gets to him and then Lillard kind of kicks it over to Noah Vonley and he takes like one two steps and like meets Vonley at the rim and sends it back I mean he's, he was making absurd athletic plays you can watch the game in OKC when it was like the, the that rivalry from 2016 Thunder Warriors and uh, he gets like 16 rebounds in that game and, and you just watch him athletically he's just flying around defensively he does not have that top level lateral speed anymore he can't get up like he used to and, and block shots it, you know his block and steal numbers are down but the, and he showed it last year where i think he rightfully finished right in the defensive player of the year conversation was a first team all defender his brain does so much for them and you know it's it's the reason why they're still committed to him even though the handcuffs that he puts on them offensively and and you know what he isn't offensively affects James Wiseman's growth and Jonathan Kaminga's growth probably this season just because what he is is a non-shooter and really kind of a non-scorer but they're okay with that at least to this point because everything he does mentally defensively I think he probably understands defensive basketball better than like you could argue anybody ever essentially Um, but you know if that does fall off then it becomes a concern this year no for sure and again you you know you think okay there's probably even right now it might be anthony davis it might be him of who i would most want to have as a playoff defensive basketball player but the way they are built this year like he really kind of has to be that guy over 82 games and i you know maybe just they're like hey we we can't get stuck in the play in this year like we got to just be better in the regular season like six seed six seed has to be the target for them they just like they've got to try to get out of the play and you could say that about a lot of these teams in that muddled mix in the west but um they just, especially with like the fact that they know they're easing Clay Thompson in, their two goals should be don't, you know, avoid the play in and get Clay Thompson as, as ready as possible for the playoffs. So those should be their real two goals. Um, all right, let's let's get to predicted record here. I will go first. I'm gonna go with forty seven wins for this group. Um and that's just I think if everyone is healthy, they'll be playing at a much better level than that by the end. But I do, you know, I think they are still kind of drawing dead when Steph misses games. I worry a little bit about what they do when Draymond is out or if he can't play at his absolute maximum. You know, the point guard, both offensively and defensively, they don't really have much depth there. The big man depth as well. Playing, they're going to play these young guys, at least some. I don't expect them to really contribute too much to winning basketball. So, yeah, I think their best lineups could be, in theory, you know, they could be a top five, six team in the NBA when they have their absolute best group out there firing on all cylinders. But I think just over a long season, it's just, it's not going to be possible due to all those factors I mentioned for them to be doing that that much. So I, I think 47 wins is a, a realistic one for this group because, you know, I kind of think about it. I'm like, like, there's no way they get over like 51 or 52, right? Like, even if everything goes perfectly. Yeah. I mean, the argument for their best case scenario is what they were in those final 20 games last year, which is in a yep 
in a regular season setting when they're playing their their small style and they have Steph Curry. They went 15 and 5 in the last 20 games and, and like I said had the best net rating in the league and inform Steve Kerr that he should commit to that type of style more often this season. It's why they're doing it. So that the argument would be like, look, it just works on a regular season setting. They could be a 50-type win team because they're just going to use that a lot more often. The argument against it, which I would I would tend to lean a bit more towards, is um, there, it's going to be somewhat of a choppy season. You're already seeing, which, like, there's going to be a reintegration of James Wiseman at some point early in the season that is probably going to be kind of clunky at times. And, and maybe they utilize Santa Cruz, which I, I honestly think the best strategy for them is to, under the guise of of, hey, he's like getting his knee back. Give him a lot of time in Santa Cruz before you put him back, like really in a in a high stakes NBA setting. But you know the fact that they're going to have to try to get James Wiseman, you know, reintegration minutes that is going to probably jumble up their rotation after they've gotten a rhythm with it. I assume early in the season, the Kaminga Moody factor and and the push and pull probably from ownership and front office to try to see those guys and get those guys developmental minutes. Uh, it could you know could lead to just more losses than than you would normally expect, and then. You know, you're going to throw that the the Clay Thompson situation in the mix in the middle of the season, and that would generally make you say, "Oh, that's great for them; they're going to be better." But that's probably going to be kind of awkward to just toss in the middle of the season uh, and, and say, "Hey, look, Clay Thompson is kind of going to get 18. Like, let's see what he looks like type minutes for the next couple of weeks." Um, and so, I just I think it's going to be choppy, uh, and it was last season. But I, I just because of Curry, if we're assuming health and and who they are, I I do think you know. 48 49 Vegas put it around like what 48 and a half something like that uh, I think that's that's what the line that we used for our over under pod last week yeah that's a good line by Vegas and I know there's a there's a lot of idea that they they have this huge um variance of what they could be hey they could if, if everything breaks right if the rookies are better than they think if clay comes back quicker and looks great they could be like a you know a top seed I don't see that to me no th- to me I honestly think their best season with this group let's say they keep it together they don't make a big trade I actually think it's next season you get Clay Thompson, you know, try to reintegrate him. You, you you try to get the rookies and Wiseman up to speed as much as possible. You have a playoff run. I actually think maybe the best remaining season of this kind of era of the Warriors is probably next season. Um, but I think I just don't see the, the top level type regular season now dangerous in the playoffs as of a six seed sure i could i could see that argument i'm going 48 wins so i guess i would go slight under um you know and i and i could hear the argument for like low 40s to be honest well and that's kind of thing right so last year they had the point differential of a 42 win team as we compare their performance coming up this year to last year what are the reasons to think they'll be better well you know pool playing a full year the bench not totally sucking wiseman either being better or not playing um you know clay being back but the reality is that it would be i think it'd be impossible for steph curry and draymond green to play better than they did last year and that's you know how well your best players play is probably the number one variable and how good of a team you are and they still you know only have the point differential of a 42 in teams so to say that they're gonna be even for me five games better than they were last year like yes they had a few things that went wrong the Ubre experiment wasn't great and Wiseman and um, you know but you know they didn't really get killed that badly by COVID compared to a bunch of other teams for example and uh so I, I 
I mean, I think so, to say they'd be 10 games better than their point differential last year, like that just seems very, very difficult to imagine, particularly, I mean, if, is Clay going to play, you know, 1,200 minutes this year or something like that? Like, I, I just, I don't think he's going to make that big of a difference. Maybe like Porter comes back and Iguodala and those guys really make a difference. Um, But it's just, it's hard for me to make, to just say, yeah, these guys are just going to be so much better than last year when Draymond and Steph, it would be impossible for them to be better and they're a year older. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think that uh, maybe we maybe we are underrating a little bit the factor of like bringing an Iguodala, a Porter, a Bielitsa in and replacing what Ubre yeah. and Bazemore were could just help the environment that Steph Curry's operating within. Like, yes, he had unbelievable stats last year, but there's just so many times he's playing bumper cars with Kelly Ubre off the ball, and the offense is ranked twentieth for a reason. I mean, it just like it didn't fit what Steve Kerr wanted to be. And you know, maybe you can blame Steve Kerr's stubborn approach at times from a coaching perspective, and he and not adapting to what his personal Nell was last season but I thought the front office generally did a solid job this offseason of going look we're going to adapt to what should maximize what Steve Kerr wants to be um, and so maybe that just leads to more wins and they definitely had a lot of swing games last year where like they, they, they were a disaster late in games at times like remember the double Draymond Green technical in Charlotte that handed yeah. but uh, but they also outperformed their point yeah, differential. yeah they got yeah. blown so, out like crazy I don't know that's such a weird season last year um, but at the same time if your argument was hey they're gonna everything's gonna go well because they don't have all these like Wiseman type factors and, and the Uber like to me I'm, I laid it out earlier but like they're are going to have a lot of those the choppy forms of a season because of the need to play young guys Wiseman's reintegration and Clay Thompson's reintegration like there's just going to be awkward you know patches of the schedule where they're just trying to refigure out who they are because they've changed the the you know mix on the floor and that to me leads to to rough patches that are that don't really happen if you're like a 50 win team you know what too though like you mentioned that you think next year could be maybe the time for this group but the west is wide open right now jamal murray in denver is probably not going to be you know he'll be in even worse shape than clay coming back and Kawhi leonard you know who knows if he's going to play at all this year i mean the clippers i think are the team that would have been the biggest problem for them because they had so much defensive versatility as well you know i don't know despite the fact that we're talking about them you know maybe not winning that many games like when they're at full strength is there anybody that you feel like they couldn't beat in the west um you know what's full strength are we like we're really you know going yeah, to their it, best it, case where you know, clay thompson's a very good like clay thompson's back to someone himself yeah you know clay thompson is is you know the sixth or seventh best shooting guard in the league that type of yeah that, then yes if clay thompson by playoff time is the sixth or seventh best shooting guard in the league if if the young guys that aren't killing them and maybe even at times like injecting some useful dimensions into the rotation yeah i think that i think anyone in the the west should be should fear them even if they're sitting at the sixth seat or coming out of the play-in uh, i do think the physicality and size of the lakers might be a bad matchup for them because of what we were talking yeah. about earlier but but they always play well against westbrook too like they know how yeah. to deal with westbrook's limitations more than any team and, and you know certainly lebron james were, you know we're talking about potential age-related decline you know lebron james yeah. that might happen to him too i mean i have the lakers uh, being the number one seed this year but yeah i mean there's uh, there's nobody to me that looks un totally unbeatable for these guys would i favor them maybe not but they could be playing well enough especially because their style i think is going to cause a lot of problems for these teams that have to have a traditional center on the floor the lakers to me are the one team with anthony davis's defensive versatility where maybe that changes so but i don't think there's anybody else in the west that can stop 
these guys. Yeah, I, I um, think and, and, where and I, stop Steph Curry. Where I agree with you is the West is down. So if you fast forwarded yeah. to late May and told me look, the Warriors are up two one in the West Finals right now and like they're probably coming out of the West, I would be like, whoa, like a lot of stuff broke right for them. But at yeah. the same time, I would probably think league wide, a lot of stuff broke well for them too. Where like you said, Lakers just you know it, the, their mix didn't work. And to be honest with you, like I I don't think that Lakers mix is going to work that well. At least you know as, as a full throttle playoff team to me i i still think they're the favorite in the west but i think they kind of hurt themselves with going with the westbrook trade instead of the buddy healed trade and and giving up some of that defense uh that that you know made them good the last couple of seasons uh i i'm concerned about davis physically because of what i saw last year and obviously you mentioned the lebron situation uh Clippers down, Nuggets down, Jack, you know, the the two teams, three teams I, w- I would throw in the conversation that right now I think are more likely to emerge than the Warriors as maybe the team to beat in the West. It would be Jazz, Suns, uh, uh, yeah. Mavericks, maybe. But yeah, but those teams are all going to play a conventional pick and roll defensive style with the center. And that's the Warriors matchup really well. Like, yeah. you know, now those teams might outscore the Warriors in the end. But, you know, I don't think that they're even if you're saying, yeah, this team isn't what it was. Clay is not like, you know, the amazing secondary threat that he once was. I mean, I really think those teams have struggled to deal with with Steph Curry, whereas the Lakers getting back to them, I think because Anthony Davis, it, Jovan's kind of starting to report that he's going to start at center for them. And I think that's going to really change a lot uh, about that team if that's really what is going to happen yeah and and you saw it in the playing game when it was Warriors Lakers last year a lesser degree of what we would potentially see in a playoff series but it was like Andre Drummond started and played a ton in the first half and the Warriors were up like 14 and then Andre Drummond <laughs> did, was basically on the bench the whole second half and it was a lot of Davis at center and the Lakers came back and won the game so you know that's I, that's probably I would pick the Lakers over the Warriors right now obviously in a series uh, and that to yeah. me that's I think their toughest matchup but what you're saying is right particularly some of these young teams uh, that haven't got over the mountaintop in the playoffs if they are staring at the Warriors in the second round and the Warriors are playing their unique style and, and Draymond Green is is roaring all over the court and yelling at the bench and and you're in uh, the Bay Area against this team that obviously does have just this championship medal and I think there will be a desperation from them but also just they're so wise in that type of setting because of what they used to be like that's a scary proposition for some of these other teams in the West but I'm still not picking the Warriors to come out of the West no I wouldn't either but yeah I mean, and also just what happens in the regular season I mean that I expect that them Dallas, Denver, probably all going to be right around uh, that kind of 47 win area. And so, you know, who gets into the top half of the bracket? You know, who could avoid the Lakers until the conference semifinals? I think the Clippers could maybe get in that mix too, uh, depending on on if Kawhi were to potentially come back. Ramona Shelburne was a little bit more optimistic in her piece the other day that that he could return towards the end of the season. It was you know, kind of one line. So don't know what to make out of that. You never know with, with Kawhi. But um, yeah, I mean, I think just uh, given how how down the west is this year i think this is even with clay coming back like this i think this is is their chance but in any event we shall uh find out through the reporting of one anthony v slater uh throughout the season on the athletic and uh we will talk to you all tomorrow We're gonna get another awesome season outlook uh thanks for joining us man we appreciate it yep thanks for having me reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, welcome on now to Brad Rowland to talk Atlanta Hawks. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. And uh pretty interesting season ahead, I think, for the Hawks. 
Yeah, it really is. And a lot of times I think we wait until a little bit later to do the Hawks because they've got some big rookies. We don't know what this team is. We want to see them in preseason before we can talk about them. Not really the case this year. They kind of just brought the same guys back who were obviously very successful a season ago. Yeah, it's quite interesting for me having just covered a rebuild and last year was kind of an up and down season. And yeah, it's mostly status quo. They have some tweaks on the margins, but all of the core guys are returning. They kind of brought the band back together. And that makes a little bit of a, I'm not saying I, that I dislike it, but it's very different than in previous years. So the big question then that we can talk about, which we haven't been able to talk about as much in, in past years is that crazy season they had. They upset the number one seed in a game seven on the road made it to the conference finals flamed out uh, although of course a lot of that was due to trey young's injury and who knows what might have happened had that not occurred Uh, but what did you think at the time it was happening last year did it feel like this team was the second best team in the eastern conference when it got to playoff time i think it was both real and not at the same time just because of you know i think everyone um, at least the consensus was that the best two teams were probably Brooklyn and Milwaukee, and then Brooklyn had their issues and ended up losing that series injury-wise. So I think those were probably the two top teams, and that's going to be the case this year, I think, coming into the season. But it didn't feel like the Hawks were you know, inferior to the Sixers when they won that series. Obviously, Philly was the favorite the entire way, but the Hawks were competitive and didn't feel too fluky. You know, Philly shot themselves in the foot a little bit over the course of that series, but the Hawks were playing incredibly well. And really, since McMillan took over midseason, they were a different team, and you can certainly argue how sustainable that all was, but given what they had been able to do for a few months before that, it didn't feel totally unreasonable that they were, you know, more like probably a top three or four team in the East rather than definitely a top two team, but it didn't feel crazy even if it felt like it, uh, maybe nationally, uh, just because of how, how well they've been playing in the, the previous few months. Yeah, you know, uh, I guess uh, you said we could argue how sustainable that all was. I, I guess we'll we'll have that conversation <laughs> pretty shortly. But I would say that the Hawks, it, it didn't, knowing who they were going up against and knowing what they were in the regular season, it didn't shock me what ended up happening. Um, you know, I did, I, I picked them to destroy the Knicks. I thought that was a great matchup for them. Uh, and I thought the Philly matchup was a better one than your typical one versus four would be, particularly with the the Joel Embiid injury issues. And, and Danny actually, I think, picked the Hawks in six in part because of that. Um, but, you know, those were two teams that I think didn't really have the ability to exploit some of the Hawks' defensive weaknesses at all. You know, I think that was really sort of a catalyst uh, for them that, you know, Clint Capella was able to be really effective in that Knicks series because they just kept bashing their heads against the wall time after time and and they didn't have any spacing. Uh, And, you know, Embiid kind of wore down against uh, Capella as uh, things went on and they didn't have anyone to go after Trey Young. So I thought it was good, good matchups. And also I just, I had more respect for Trey Young than I think the national conversation did coming in. You and I both marveled at the fact that he wasn't an all-star last year compared to uh, some of the more questionable choices. Perhaps his opposite number at quote-unquote point guard in that Philly series uh, being one of them <laughs> last year. Um, so I, it didn't shock me that Trey Young was able to have the playoffs that he did. Did that surprise you? Did you feel like he ascended to another level? Or was this just sort of a continuation of what he had been dur- during the regular season to you? Yeah, I think that it was more of a continuation than most think. Uh, I know you were, you're closer to where I am on, on Trey. And I think... 
locally, you know, the Hawks are never a prime national team to watch. So unless you're trying to watch them, you don't necessarily do that. And the national narrative follows that. But yeah, it was impressive that he was able to hold up the way that he did. And I agree with you that the matchups were favorable in terms of his defense, in particular against New York and Philadelphia. But nothing surprised me that he did offensively in the playoffs. I mean, that was a question that he answered, to be sure, because, you know, small guard, he hadn't had that sort of big stage like that. But he's a big stage guy. His personality is suited to the playoffs. He likes the spotlight, as we saw, especially in the Knicks series. He liked to take it on and be that sort of villain role on the road and all that stuff. So, you know, his level of play didn't necessarily surprise me. I think it was more of a continuation than anything else. But if that's what it takes to get some more recognition for him, I'm sure, you know, the Hawks will take it. And uh, you mentioned the All-Star thing. That looks even crazier now than it did in the moment, obviously, with him not being an All-Star last season. Pretty crazy to see that um, in retrospect. And But yeah, I, I think overall it was more of just kind of what I expected rather than uh, the breakout narrative that was kind of happening. Yeah, and really those series, those two series that they played and won were kind of rock fights. Uh, and, you know, it's not like Trey's individual stats, if you go back and look at them, were not amazing. Now, the volume uh, in terms of points and assists uh, was very high, and it looked good when he was out there. And, you know, he had a couple of really rough shooting games that uh, were maybe uncharacteristic uh, for him as well that that lowered things down. But, you know, I didn't think in terms of his overall statistics, statistics it was dominating, it was, but... Within the team concept, being able to be successful, their defense being able to hold down these kind of two mediocre offenses that they went against. And so he was the big star and he kind of got the credit. Yeah, he played, had some really good games and hit some really big shots and all that. But yeah, again, I don't think that he was at like much different of a level than in the regular season. It was just that it was on a, a bigger stage. Yeah, being able to maintain your performance in the playoffs, I don't mean to sneeze at that, but yeah, I, I thought this it was pretty much kind of what I expected from him in the playoffs going up against those two teams that were going to be largely playing a conventional pick and roll defense style. It was impressive to be sure, but I agree. It was, I think it's because you and I are higher on him historically. But, uh, you know, if, again, if that's what it takes to get him recognized, I think they'll probably take it. But uh, it was more of a, <laughs> it, it, it was impressive that he was able to do what he did, but not surprising. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the entire season that they had last year, and particularly the post McMillan time where, you know, they were famously, I think it was 14 and 20. Correct me if I'm wrong on, on that. If, yep. uh, when, when Lloyd Pierce was dismissed, although they'd gotten pretty unlucky in close games, although some would say they deserved that bad luck with some of the coaching that was involved. And then they really turned it on. What were, what did you think of this team after McMillan took over? Why were they so much more successful uh, than under Pierce? Yeah, you, you mentioned the 14 and 20, and that's sort of burned in everyone's mind that covers this team. And they were 27 and 11 after that. And, you know, part of it was just, uh, you know, maybe some regression to the mean. You mentioned the close game stuff. I think they were kind of unlucky in those close games. You know, you could certainly argue that Pierce was not a proven uh, positive coach by any means, but they also had some injuries throughout. And um, I think, ironically, this isn't this doesn't explain the entire thing, but Bogdan Bogdanovich returned from a 25-game injury on the single day where, Mc, where McMillan took over, and that probably yeah. helped as well because he was incredible the rest of the season. That was a big driver. Um, but, you know, they went from an expected win total of about, 46 over the full season to about 52 under McMillan. So it was a, it was a jump. They played slower. That was a noticeable thing, which is not surprising if you thought Nick McMillan's career by any means, but they played slower. They were more methodical. They took more long twos, which is not, is not necessarily the greatest thing, but they have some pretty good shooters in that range. Um, and then defensively, they were more buttoned up, which is something that you can credit McMillan with for sure, as well as Clint Capella. But I think they were just more of a professional operation. They were probably a little bit healthier 
And I was one I was one that thought that the Lloyd Pierce hate kind of went too far, particularly locally. But at the same time, McMillan is a upgrade um, on paper from what you would have gotten because Nate is, no matter what you think about him, he's been a longtime fixture as a solid head coach. Maybe not an elite one, but a solid one. He kind of just, um, the, the locker room seemingly was lost by Pierce at some point along the way, and they were definitely bought in the narrative. And even this, the, you don't want to make too much of it, but the quotes and everything was just more upbeat, pretty much right from the downbeat. And winning helps that to be sure. Um, the schedule was a, little bit, was a little bit more favorable as well. It was kind of a a lot of different boxes between a little bit better health, not all the way, but a little bit better schedule, and also Nate just kind of being a steady hand and trusting the vet. And the veterans in particular seem to like McMillan a lot more than Pierce, so it was kind of that whole thing, but you know, I think it's interesting also because they played a fairly similar style in terms of like what they were running, and McMillan was honest about that the entire way. Like, look, we don't have a training camp. We don't have a even the All-Star break really was kind of a short one to install and he was uh, sort of deferring to Pierce and crediting Pierce even into the playoffs about the structure and that's one of the questions I actually have for next for this coming season is like what he's going to actually install but for the most part yeah it wasn't massive changes it was just more little tweaks yeah and I guess you know Pierce the locker room was lost Pierce said it go I mean you had guys walking into the opposing locker room you had guys walking into utility closets like they could nobody could even find the locker room that's that's how lost it was <laughs> At, at that point but yeah it, uh so mcmillan now is uh on board with a long-term contract and yeah you know there's some talk about oh they play a little bit more slowly more methodically he's calling more plays i think that that in some way particularly now and trey young didn't particularly care for lloyd pierce but supposedly one of the big problems was that trey young was too ball dominant and you know if they're just playing kind of like a flow style that was just going to lead to more reps for Trey, bringing it up, you know, more possessions where he was either, you know, making the play and setting guys up for a catch and shoot or uh, had the ball in his hands. And so just, I think one way you can combat that and also find other angles of attack for a team that has a lot of, you know, players like Danilo Gallinari and Bogdanovich, veterans who could play now Lou Williams as well, that just by calling plays for those guys in the half court, you can maybe avoid some of that resentment from Trey doing so much during the meat of the game and and uh, find a play for Bogdanovich, who, by the way, will shoot every single time the play is called <laughs> for him. Uh, some of his shot selection in the playoff was unbelievable, but he was making those until until the playoffs and his knee acted up. Um, so yeah, what, what are some other like big things that you're going to be watching this year for this team? One of the big things is injuries, and on one hand, their top guys, Trey Young, Clint Capella, John Collins, were fairly healthy last season, but if you go the next rung down, they had a lot of absences, particularly on the wing. They were down to playing Solomon Hill about 1,500 minutes last year, which was not the plan coming into the season. Um, Tony Snell played a lot of minutes. Um, they got 44 games from Bogdanovich, uh, 23 from Hunter, 26 from Reddish, uh, 51 from Gallo is probably pretty reasonable, but they had some nights, even with a very deep roster where that depth was tested last season, particularly in the middle of the year when they were kind of swooning. And I, I wonder what, what it looks like, particularly with DeAndre Hunter, if he's able to be healthy and if he's able to be as good as he was early. And you can't necessarily take his efficiency numbers at face value. They were uh, borderline incredible last season in a small sample size. But having 
kind of what they want in terms of their wing depth or wing rotation will be interesting to me, provided that it actually stands out. Because I, I know I mentioned Bogdanovich, but he was out of his mind late last season, and Hunter was good early. Kevin Hunter came on in the playoffs, of course, but um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, fingers crossed, I guess, for the Hawks, seeing what this group actually looks like. Because I think because the top guys were not injured, the lack of uh, maybe discussion about the Hawks injury stuff was kind of it was kind of muted just because I think it really affected them in the regular season particularly early in the year because they just kind of never had their group in fact I looked this up today to make sure I wasn't crazy they essentially had their entire rotation for the preseason healthy for one half of one game last season yeah and they were pretty close to that Cam Reddish I think was the only guy they were missing early on and then of course Hunter went down uh, and he to me is a really important player for this team and just to give them that athleticism uh, like honestly they didn't have uh, another reason that those matchups were pretty good for them was those teams didn't really have like very good wing scores that you had to worry about and so you know you could play Herder and Bogdanovich together for example and not really have to worry uh, too much Uh, and you could also even hide Trey at times uh, with those groups Uh, and so uh, you know, having Hunter come back, if they have a matchup with the Nets, for example, you know, I, I, I mean, you could say this for a lot of teams, but I don't think the Hawks are going to match up too well with the Nets, uh, the way that the, the Nets just like pick it at open sores. And, you know, they really, really struggled to stop the Bucks uh, as well. I thought for most of uh, that series. Um, so uh, having someone who can guard the best player on the other team uh, the big wing you know going up against the Celtics I think would have been a tough matchup for what these guys were in the playoffs if the Celtics were healthy and nobody was healthy last year uh but what is the health status uh, of Hunter going into training camp because obviously he had so many false starts uh, last year yeah, as we're recording this, no one has spoken on the record about Hunter in a long time. The last official update was about three months ago almost, and expectation at that point in time was for Hunter to be on track for training camp. I've not heard differently, but the Hawks will be getting into their media day stuff over the weekend as we're recording this, and maybe we'll get some more information. I think that, you know, as far as I hear, and again, that's not gospel at this moment in time, I expect him to be at least in camp and ready to go and working out, and I can see a situation where he's maybe limited earlier the year just because uh, they might want to be careful with him he is a young guy um you know year three kind of a lost season last year despite you know having the breakout of sorts early on and it was nagging you you mentioned it but you know they ramped him up a few times during the season only to have some false starts then he came back very briefly for about two games that had to go on the shelf again came back for the playoff series looked closer like himself like he was when he first came back in the regular season it was not very uh, crisp for him yeah. he looked okay in the next series and then pretty much right as the next series ended they announced he was gonna be out for the season so he had the the meniscus cleanup surgery at the end of the year and you know that timetable is commensurate with him coming back i would imagine um so we'll see what happens with hunter but until i hear otherwise i'm planning on him being in the mix and starting from day one yeah schleich said that he was doing some spot shooting back in august not that that was a, an official update or even that it necessarily means anything but yeah i mean it's, it sounds like there's no evidence that he had a meniscus repair so yeah if he's not ready to go and you know granted they've had uh as i mentioned a number of false starts with him uh hopefully we won't hear anything about him having a non-surgical procedure 
That's a Hawks. That's a Hawks favorite, as you will know at this point. They they love they, they love the non surgical procedure. Uh, Bogdanovich had one that they didn't actually announce that he he actually leaked to uh, Chris Kircher of the Athletic over the offseason, and that was a PRP injection. They kind of use that for all all measure of activities. A lot of the times it's PRP stuff, but uh, they love a good non surgical procedure. Yeah, if if the guys uh, doing some step ups in the uh, in the training room is that is that a non surgical <laughs> procedure as well at, at this point? Yeah. Um, all right, so, so you think Hunter, you know, probably starts at the three. I mean, I guess Bogdanovich would be in line to start at the two. He said that he's he's totally healthy uh, a couple of days ago. And Trey at the one, you think that's how it's going to shake out? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the only the thing that could change that in my mind would be if Hunter is just not himself or not quite ready to play yeah. a normal workload. But I'd be surprised if there's anything else. You know, McDonovich kind of had a, a weird start the season. They had that he had that avulsion fracture and was out for 25 games. But when he came back, you mentioned the shot selection. He has no conscience at all. He averaged 22 points a game on the stretch. I mean, that's probably not sustainable because he shot 50 percent from three, uh, 49.8 from three on huge yeah. volume. But he is a, a willing shooter, and they have invested in him. He did not like coming off the bench early in the year, too, and kind of made that known. Uh, so yeah. I think that they're going to start him, and it'll be him and Hunter on the wings unless something crazy happens. Yeah, and I also think he's a better defender than Kevin Herter as well. I think he's just a better player than Kevin Herter. Now, that wasn't the case by the time that Bogdanovich was so limited. Man, I mean, it's uh, talking about this Hawks playoff run, I'm like, going back and thinking, it just uh, like it's all flooding back to me now of just like how comically injured every single team was last <laughs> yep. year i mean you know like the hawks they're starting one two and three were basically like completely unavailable by the end of that buck series right <laughs> like it was, oh yeah it was they, just, they were they were like, playing you know trey was hobbling obviously bogdanovich was dragging his leg for the last series and a half hunter was out their best three cam reddish had just come back and hadn't played in four months the only healthy yeah, perimeter Chris they had Dunn was, was yeah. Chris Dunn is like making his season debut in the conference finals. <laughs> it was it was truly wild. I, mean, I think people have almost forgotten this, and that was kind of the, honestly it was the theme of the season for the Hawks last year. As crazy as that might sound for a team that made the conference finals, was just how banged up they were. But yeah, by the end, the entire perimeter rotation they're they're playing Gallo at the three. They're playing you know they're playing Tony Snell at one possible Solomon Hills playing rotation minutes in the playoffs. Um, they even missed Brandon Goodwin in the playoffs. He he would have played because Trey was out for that little bit of time in the Milwaukee series, and he was out with a with with COVID basically or in something something approximating COVID. Uh, you know how that all goes. But it's, uh, yeah, it was really crazy to go back. I was looking at the stats in preparation for this podcast, even, and how many minutes were played by guys you would not prefer to have be playing in the conference finals. Yeah, so you'd have to imagine if Hunter is not ready, I still feel like they'd probably start Reddish. You know, I don't know if they would go Bogdanovich and Herter just because they, I think they're going to feel like they'll, they'll need that uh, athletic defensive presence on the wing. I would imagine that is the case, you know, Reddish is a, a pivot point here in Atlanta in particular. Uh, a lot of Hawks fans have always loved him. Um, he's had some flashes, and you know and that includes the Conference Finals game where he made a bunch of threes and uh, and looked pretty good, but he's also had some injury stuff. He's also not performed very well offensively in his career, but I, I tend to agree if they didn't have Hunter just for the defensive aptitude. you know, They open up with the Mavericks on national TV. I think if you're going to play Luka Doncic, you might want to have someone that can guard him on that opening night. Mm. Um, and that's just obviously a one-off. It's one game, but if you you end up starting but 
Bogdanovich and Herter, you don't really have an ideal guy to put on Luka uh, or someone like Luka later on in the season. I do think that um, Herter is better than Cam Reddish at this moment in time, but if you were looking just for like a what you would want um, package-wise, you might want that defensive first, uh, a little bit long, a little bit longer of a guy in Cam Reddish, and he's not as good as DeAndre Hunter. They're obviously hoping to have Hunter back, but if there was something wrong with Hunter, I might lean towards Reddish as well. Yeah, I, I mean Cam Reddish, you know, career forty-four percent from two, thirty-one percent from three. He does get him up though, uh, reasonably well. Uh, and you know under 50 percent true shooting for his career and yeah he's shown some defensive energy it, it has shown some potential there maybe more as an on-ball guy than doing some of the help stuff you'd like to see from your uh, uh, a wing of his athleticism so but I think you know it kind of and last year was kind of a lost year for him with the the Achilles soreness and you know it took him a while to, to come back from that uh many procedures non-surgical procedures probably were had (laughs) on that achilles uh but you know because it's really i think that uh loving optimism you talked about from hawks fans it kind of all goes back to what like that last month of 2020 before the shutdown where he went crazy shooting the ball yeah, and even even dating back to the draft, he was a he was for whatever reason, whether it was Duke or maybe his prospect type coming out of high school, he just kind of even around the league, honestly, players seem to think a lot of Cam Reddish, um, probably more than he actually has earned at this moment in time. I think he's a really talented guy, but if you look at his offensive numbers in the NBA, it's it's pretty ugly um, overall. He's had the flashes. You mentioned the one about you know month, maybe two months of his you know late in that season where he made a bunch of shots and obviously made a bunch of shots in the Eastern Conference Finals. But if you if you just watch the entire the entirety of it look at the numbers it's kind of ugly and this is a big year for him I think overall obviously the Hawks have these four wings three younger guys and the Bogdanovich and they probably can't keep them all long term um, you would imagine maybe they will but Reddish just because he had think I think has proven the least you know Hunter at least ha- at least has last season early on in the year where he looked the part of a breakout um, Reddish has had a little bit of that along the way but he's a lower draft pick I think everyone would agree Hunter's a better player right now um, Reddish is kind of on the outside looking in in my in my view not necessarily for this season where he definitely has a role but proving that he is a capable offensive player would go a long way because I like his defense I always have but if you, he, he probably has to to establish himself a little bit more offensively to, you know, next year he'll be extension eligible. That's the thing with this Hawks team. They have a bunch of these young guys, these former lottery picks, former top 20 picks, and they're all going to have to get some money along the way here. And Reddish is perhaps the least proven of all that bunch. Yeah, that, it'll be very interesting if he kind of continues in this bench role getting into some of those extension negotiations and you know you could see that one being a difficult negotiation that maybe doesn't happen because he might want to try to go play elsewhere but you know Danilo Gallinari this is almost certainly you would think his last year on the team he'll either be traded or released before next year like he just doesn't fit in their salary structure at at 20 million and we'll see what ends up happening uh, of course uh, with Herder as well and Bogdanovich you know, he's only only under contract for two more years so a lot of that could change and obviously you know if reddish if somebody else gets injured or hunter really struggles again like there will be a already made role for reddish you know the front court really kind of seems like it's going to be same deal as it was john collins clint capella uh gallo coming off the bench uh, the biggest question to me is you know what they do at the backup front court of kongu you know it sounds like the earliest he could be back would maybe be january coming off a uh the shoulder issue and they signed Gorgie Jang, but you know, I probably out if I'd want to be playing Gorgie Jang instead of John Collins at backup center. Um, so uh, how do you see that situation 
shaking out and then also once Okongwu inevitably returns. Yeah, I think that they were in a kind of a tricky spot because they've, of course, invested a number six overall pick in Okongwu, but they had the reality that he was going to be out for a few months and they knew that before free agency. So there's that push-pull with we need a backup center that is competent, but also we, that that player and that player's agent knows that Okongwu is going to have a role when he comes back. So you're trying to get a guy who's good enough to play, but is also not great enough where he has this massive market where he knows he's not going to probably play a lot when Okongwu comes back. I think Jen kind of fits in the middle of that um, pretty well. I, I thought that was a great signing given those uh, limitations that you just discussed. Yeah, I, I totally agree. He was high on my list of, um, honestly, I was a little bit surprised he signed with the Hawks. I thought, um, not not in a bad way for the Hawks. I think it was probably as good as they could have, could have possibly done with that slot. And, you know, McMillan likes to play big for the most part. I think you can pencil in Jang for the rotation, and we'll see how many minutes Collins plays at the five. That's always a question. He played, he played fewer minutes at the five last year. Part of that was having Capella and Okongwu, of course. Um, but also, you know, Nate likes to play bigger, and he's been Collins has developed more as a perimeter player in the last couple of seasons. Uh, you know, the Stars are entrenched, and honestly, they were fantastic together last year. C- Collins and Capella had a plus six point six net rating when playing together last year. That's very very strong. Um, but yeah, behind them, you have Gallinari, who they're paying a lot of money to for at least one more season. He's fully entrenched as the backup power forward. And I think it'll be a miss, um, a sort of a mix and match as to how much how much Jeng plays, how much Collins plays at the five. Um, they have their first round pick is Jalen Johnson, who's more of a four. Um, this is a team that's trying to win now. That's a big question is how much he might look to play this year. Um and then Okongwu, you know, you have to play him when he comes back. This is a this is a lottery pick who flashed in the playoffs that I, I think obviously it'll be a little while. It'll be January, maybe even February. I'm always cautious on projecting timelines for return. But I do think that, you know, early in the season, it'll be Collins, Collins, Capella, and Gallinari for sure every night. And then a little bit of Jang, maybe a little bit of Johnson, maybe even some Solomon Hill or, or Hunter as a backup power forward if they need to do that. But, um, you know, three fully entrenched guys and then kind of patch it together from there. Yeah. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Well, is Jalen Johnson, is he going to take over the mantle of talented, (laughs) somewhat disappointing Duke forward that is the apple of Hawks fans' eye? Uh, I think we're already there, to be honest. Uh, (laughs) He was very good in Summer League and very intriguing. And honestly, I thought that that was a great draft pick, not to derail the podcast with draft talk on number 20 overall pick, but... I thought no, he was no, like no. A, we we got to talk about him. He's he's a really exciting player. Yeah, I thought he was a you know probably like a late lottery talent. I had him somewhere in my late lottery, and you know him falling to twenty was kind of a. And Schlenke even acknowledged this kind of like, look, we just stayed put, and the guy fell to us, and we were thrilled with that, and that's the case. I think that the, this the summer league performance that he had is not going to do any favors to Nate McMillan uh, when he's going to hearing from uh, hearing from the fan base on wanting to play Jalen Johnson. The good thing is that they're obviously trying to win now, and they do have guys in front of him that you obviously can't not play. Like, Gallinari is making $20 million a year as your backup power forward. He's going to play. But the first time Nate McMillan plays Solomon Hill over Jalen Johnson, there might be a riot in Atlanta. I'll just, I'll be honest. (laughs) I like him, though. Although, even even getting Hill back, I mean, his numbers weren't great last year, but as an Indian leader, he didn't didn't kill him. You know, he can get out there and, like, he'll at least take shots. I'm not going to make him necessarily, but he'll take him. Uh, you know, as as a, a bench option, but yeah, it, do, it does seem like they might want to get Johnson to some run here. But yeah, and then so now let's get to the 
biggest reason that I am higher on this team for the regular season than maybe some people are, and that is that they fixed their backup guard situation. Yep. It is, uh, this team is very deep overall, um, and they were deep last year despite the injuries. But I, I mean, it's been a black hole behind Trey Young for three seasons, basically. Since the moment they got rid of Jeremy Lin, who wanted out, um, when he lost it, when, when, you know, he was sort of losing time to Trey as a rookie. That's a long time ago at this point, and they kind of haven't had a solution since then. Uh, Lou Williams um, was the best they've had, and they acquired him midseason last year in the Rondo deal. Uh, sidebar, the Rondo, the Rondo experiment did not go well for the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, the uh, negative 6.6 uh, net rating with Rondo on the floor. And, and also... Brandy Goodwin, uh, uh, when he was on the floor, he didn't play all of his minutes as the lone backup point guard, but uh, that was pretty ugly too. Basically, negative. He was negative four point four. So that's why you know Trey again had the the his usual you know plus ten uh, net rating differential on off last year, uh, at least before uh, before Lou Williams came along. Yeah, even for the full season, uh, cleaning the glass had Trey at plus six point one on and minus four point six off. So almost eleven oh, yeah. point swing for the even, that, and that's the full season, even including Lou. So yeah, I mean, adding adding Delon Wright um, for a very modest price, I love that addition. You know, Delon Wright is not a star by any means, but he's a big physical guard. He could play both guard spots, and now they have options too. And I'll actually be intrigued to see what Nate McMillan does in terms of how much he plays Wright versus Williams. But that's a good problem. I think they now have two competent backup point guards, which they have just, they basically had zero for a long time, and now they have two. And they're also very different players. You know, describing DeLon Wright and Lou Williams as backup point guards, they're about as opposite on the spectrum of, of that position as you possibly can be and be effective. <laughs> you know, Wright more of a steady hand, bigger physical guy, Lou more of a score, obviously. So having that position seemingly uh, shored up is pretty big i mean it may not they may not be awesome without trey but i I have more faith in that in that standpoint now than i've had basically in his whole career yeah i mean and as you start to kind of just do the math on what this team is going to be uh if they're not the deepest team in the league they're pretty close and i think that is for the regular season is more important than it's ever been and then you know i think when trey is out there and, and with a decent starting cast around him or even if they have to elevate some of these backups like i think you know they're gonna be probably a plus five plus six net rating type of team and then the question becomes what it looks like with the backups out there and you know when you consider the way they can mix and match with you know if they're going to stagger Bogdanovich or Gallo you know who had eventually he started off slow but eventually kind of had a Gallo year you know so we'll see whether whether that happens again but they've also got other guys who can who can step in you know backup center is pretty good whether it's Collins or Kongu or you know Jane can eat some innings there Lou Williams can come in you know he's slipped but I think he can still be an adequate backup on guard so you know I don't think they're going to be a disaster you know maybe they'll be like slightly minus at worst with the bench out there but that's the biggest variable like if the bench can actually get to be a positive for this team like now you're talking about probably a 50 win type of group i i agree and i think part of the part of this was driven by their injuries and the fact that they didn't have hunter and reddish but in the mcmillan era he pretty aggressively um staggered trey young and bogdan madonovich um he liked to have one of them on the floor at all times and that ended up working you know bogdanovich was very hot which definitely helped that but i think offensively um that was helpful and granted they didn't have a, a great backup point guard but Nate was pretty aggressive in at least keeping somebody or maybe two guys. I almost want to. I always want to see more of Collins when Trey's off the court as well. They play so well together. Yeah. 
But given, I've always thought that was sort of a, a, an overlooked thing that they could do more because, particularly with Capella, because, you know, the argument against it in previous years was that Trey needed a pick and roll partner. And now when you have Capella, you already have that built in and Collins is great at that as well. But if you can add him to the second unit offense a little bit alongside Herter or Bogdanovich and, you know, Wright or Lou, you're suddenly in a much more favorable position offensively than you were because, you know, the offense has famously cratered when Trey leaves. They've actually been better defensively, as you might expect, when he's off the floor, but the offense has been, like, sub-one points per possession at times. Like, that's how bad it's been with him leaving the floor. So if you can kind of give give Wright and or Lou Williams some help with some other starters pretty regularly, that might be helpful as well. Yeah, you know, and I actually... I think the Jang Collins combination could be interesting. I agree. Um, because Jang, not really a pick and roll threat, uh, but he's, you know, it, it takes a while to get it off, but he can at least stand out by the three point line. He's been hitting 40% of his threes these last couple of years. So, you know, he, he could just kind of stand outside on offense and, you know, give them a little bit of uh, size and rebounding uh, on the defensive end. But then you let Collins be that primary pick and roll guy. Uh, and, you know, now maybe they guard. Collins with somebody smaller and they try to switch or whatever but against backup units I think that could be pretty effective I think just I probably wouldn't want to play Trey with Jang and Gallo together you know like that's yeah. but the, they'll and I don't I don't know if I like Gallo I, I think you know kind of staggering Collins uh as well onto that second unit as you alluded to could be pretty good let's talk a little bit more about John Collins though because you know he's he's back now didn't get the max contract but got a very significant contract and he's still even in the playoffs he to me at least and you can weigh in on this as well you know it looked like I, I was very impressed with what he was able to do defensively you know he's guarding Tobias Harris for a lot of time you know Tobias Harris isn't like an absolute world beater but you know most people wouldn't have said John Collins is going to like stay with someone like Tobias Harris on the perimeter uh, very well you know he guarded Julius Randle pretty well in that Knicks series uh, admittedly with you know not a ton of spacing for those teams and he had Capella behind him but he was adequate in that role so you know he kind of did the small things that really contribute to winning at a higher level than I thought he could maybe in the playoffs. But I also kind of feel like he's a little underutilized in terms of his offensive game. So what do you expect from John Collins this year? I would basically back up all of what you just said. I think that, you know, two years ago, he averaged 22 and 10. Uh, and the counting stats were kind of eye-popping, in part because they didn't have a lot of other options, and he was very, very good, don't get me wrong. And last year, you know, his per-game box score stats regressed, but if you look at the per-hundreds and the per-minute stats, they were very similar. And I think that he played less last season, uh, in part because they invested in Gallinari, in part because it's a long season and all that stuff. But I thought he was just as good offensively, really, uh, if you sort of narrow down the data as he was the previous year and then was much better defensively, as you pointed out. And I was impressed in the playoffs. It was kind of interesting to me because he averaged, I think, like 14 and 8 in the playoffs. And depending on who you asked, that was, uh, you know, uh, there was a segment of Hawks fans even that was like, oh, well, Collins doesn't deserve the big money. Look, look, he only averaged 14 points a game in the playoffs. Whereas people like you and I were like, actually, Collins was very impressive defensively and like show he can play in a playoff setting and be versatile and be, a, I mean, obviously a high end role player, but kind of a role player type at times. So it's pros and cons, but he's come a long way as a complete player. I agree with you that he needs to be utilized more offensively, particularly when Trey is off the court. Um, he's very, very good in isolation, especially in post-up situations. Um, he's one of the best play finishers in the league um, in pick and roll. And he's now an established above average shooter. 
Um, he's been a 40% three, three point shooter the last two seasons. The volume is not huge, but it's like five per hundred. It's not nothing. And he's just varied. I mean, the one thing that he doesn't do very well is pass. So if you double him that he, he can sort of, um, you know, kick it around a little bit. And that's something I think he, I think, and probably know he's working on. But aside from that, there isn't a lot of weaknesses to John Collins game. And I thought that um, last year in particular, they could have and probably should have used him more offensively just because, you know, when it's not Trey initiating offense, they still don't have that, you know, fantastic initiator. Yeah, you know, I, I think Lou Williams to me, as I, as I think more about this team, is going to be really a swing player for this group. Obviously, Trey's going to play his 35 minutes a game. Now, Lou Williams came back at a relatively small deal. It sounds like he did. He would have liked to have gone uh, somewhere else uh, but you know he's making five million this year took a little bit of a, a pay cut doesn't sound like you know i mean and it, it seems maybe he'll play a few minutes with trey but I, I don't think mcmillan really wants to do that i don't think any hawks fans want him to do that uh so you know it didn't seem like lou williams had offers of kind of that traditional six man 25 30 minute a game role that he's had in the past and you know but he still was good enough to win them a couple of playoff games shot him out of a couple of playoff games too last year <laughs> yeah but, you know, so if he's just going to kind of be the backup point guard and they're going to run a lot through him on the second unit, like that's one way to play. But if he just kind of doesn't really have it and it's not really working and he's, you know, below 50% true shooting and he can't get to the line and it's kind of kind of looking like he's about done, you know, or they, you know, he'll get out there on certain nights, he doesn't have it, and then McMillan goes another way, maybe he goes with right at point guard. You know, that could open the door to me for kind of some athletic groups that they could play on the second unit with Trey off the floor go with Collins at center maybe do a little bit more defensively versatile type of stuff but if if Lou's out there and you know they also have Gallo as well who's who's not exactly the most defensively versatile guy in the world you know so if those two guys are just kind of all right those guys are the second unit then you know I I think that's that'll lead to them kind of just playing the way they've always played but maybe they could get a little bit more versatile if you know those guys are out on a given night or, or they go a different direction uh because they're not as effective one of the questions I have that's, you know, obviously not a huge question nationally, but it's just kind of what you talked about. Like, what is the plan behind Trey between Lou and DeLon Wright? You know, I, I don't think that the Hawks were necessarily, you know, super gung-ho about bringing Lou back. It didn't seem like they were going to, you know, break the bank for him. And I think Lou looked around wanted a multi-year contract from what was reported. I think Mike Scotto had that, that he wanted a two or three-year contract. That wasn't out there for him. And Lou is a pretty interesting guy. I don't think that Lou is going to go sign in a small market. I think Lou likes to be in LA or Atlanta for the most part. He's obviously from Atlanta. So giving him more than the minimum didn't really hurt them either. They're still under the tax. So it was kind of like, all right, Lou, here's $5 million. Come back. Um, maybe you'll have a role with us, obviously. But I don't know if they're going to be wedded to playing Lou every night. You know, they have DeLon Wright, who is a very qualified backup point guard. Um, so maybe it'll be kind of what you laid out in that if Lou has it, they can ride it. If he doesn't, they don't have to play him. Maybe he'll sit back to backs. Um, he's kind of been on the record about hating afternoon games, for, for instance, which is kind of funny. Huh. Uh, but maybe you, maybe you just give him some days off, some afternoons off, some nights off, and you can go with DeLon Wright, and that's kind of okay. So um, that's not going to be a headline grabber but i i agree that's something to watch is just a, like how that situation is handled because he does give them a, a particular look but you mentioned it, they could they go pretty athletic and pretty switchy if they wanted to you know gallo 
probably not a part of that. But if you go with DeLon Wright and uh, you know three wings and John Collins, or DeLon Wright two wings, Jalen Johnson and John Collins, or even a Kongu when he comes back is very you know very athletic in that role. If you want to go him with a more you know center focused thing, they have some lineups if they want to go to them that might be that way. But McMillan's not necessarily that kind of coach necessarily either. So I don't know what he's going to look like, but they do have some optionality on the bench. Yeah, I guess the thing about Wright is. It- it's all right he's a big point guard he also can't really shoot so it'd be nice to put the put the ball in his hands just because if he's off the ball he's not really much of a threat he's kind of gumming up the works a little bit but there's probably a reason at this point that he always seems to end up playing the two yeah no he he absolutely can do that and i mean I think the Hawks are going to let their wings do some more initiation. We saw that a little bit with Kevin Herter in the playoffs. I think DeAndre Hunter is the guy that they think they can put the ball in his hands a little bit more. So if you're playing right at the point, like I agree, you probably, you probably want the ball in his hands, but they don't have perfect compliments around him. If he if he don't put the ball in his hands, they don't have this like you know on ball. He's right, maybe better suited to play with like an an on ball wing. They don't they don't, have, they don't necessarily have that guy, but yeah, if you're playing him at the two next to Trey, like that's interesting in some ways. But at, let's go back to that optionality. Like Delon Wright and Lou Williams are so different that it just gives you like these very stark contrasting options and you can kind of mix and match it but uh, i i genuinely because Wright hasn't been around and because lou um maybe wasn't going to come back until the end until like sort of the uh the 11th hour i don't know where nate is on that quite honestly yeah uh, you know i'm not saying that they shouldn't try him at point guard to be sure though you probably would want to get some other ball handling out there and maybe maybe herder would be the guy to, to play next to him yeah and actually we haven't talked much about herder who was a big hero obviously in that philly series but uh his overall numbers were not amazing 54 percent true shooting for a guy who's obviously you know shooting and and scoring is why he's out there not necessarily his defense you know you'd like him to be like kind of a 60 percent true shooting guy instead of 54 percent, but it's still still pretty early in his development he just finished his third year he's got his extension eligible as, as we record this on uh september 24th but like how good is kevin herter like what is is he is he this like shooting guard who's going to get 18 million dollars a year should get 18 million dollars a year like some of these guys did in free agency this year it's a, it's one of the big questions around this team right now is how good he is and i think i'm on the higher end about kevin herter and he just he just turned 23 about a month ago he's still very very young but the one thing about him is you mentioned the efficiency he's a really good shooter but he's like a career 37 percent three-point shooter like not 40 not 42 and you look at kevin herter and there's this notion of you know white shooter and that's kind of the reality of what you see with Kevin Herter, but yeah. I, I think he's underrated with what he can do with the ball. He's a good passer. I think he's a better defender than giving credit for as well. I think he improved, particularly last season with his defense. He's not strong yet, but he is stronger than he used to be, and he's pretty rangy. You know, he's a legit 6'7". He's fairly long. He's a pretty good athlete. So, he doesn't get you killed on the end of the floor. Like, do you want him to guard high-end wings? Probably not. But if you look, if you watch them down the stretch last year, and part of that was the absence of Hunter and Reddish, it was Herter getting the call to guard the best wing on the, on the opposition. And he didn't always do a fantastic job, but it was a credible job, is the way that I would describe it. So, you know, it's it's unfortunate for him that he probably isn't going to be in line for a 33 minute a game role this year with Bogdanovich and Hunter on the team um to kind of you know showcase himself for the extension and um you know not or maybe if there's not an extension for free agency next year but he showed in the playoffs and that was uh, probably a good time for him to you know market himself a little bit what he's able to do because he was in a bigger role so part of it 
part of the question is role with Herter, but I think he's a well-rounded, you know, starting caliber shooting guard. It's just he's on a team where, you know, the starter in front of him is more established. And like I think you said earlier, I think Bogdanovich is the better player right now. And Herter can flash to the three, but he's more of a two. So he's kind of pigeonholed in some ways. And, you know, I'm sure if you're his agent in a vacuum, you'd rather him be somewhere else. But this is where he is. And I think he's going to get paid. If, he gets, if, it's, if it's an extension, it won't be $18 million a year, I don't think. But I think he'll get mid eight figure money. I would imagine on yeah. if, if he signs it, otherwise he won't sign it. Yeah, no, that, that, that might be true. And, and I think, you know, maybe you mentioned his defense is underrated. I mean, he's still, he's not necessarily a stopper no. there. Uh, and uh, for, for perhaps for the same reasons that people assume he's a good shooter, he also is going to have a target on his back uh, on defense. But, uh, you know, I think he's a nice compliment to Trey in some ways. And we saw this in the Philly series when he was just ball racking Seth Curry uh he's able to get to the free throw line and he's what is he like he's like six eight right he's huge yeah he's, uh, a, he's a legit six seven and you know obviously it was seth curry it was a favorable matchup but they yeah. went to him it's a one game sample but they went to him over and over and over again right. on the road but, but if he's playing with trey yeah it's always going to be a favorable matchup right he's probably gonna yep. be guarded by the other team's point guard most of the time and he's confident he's confident too i think that was a, a yeah. big season last year kind of break out for him the one thing is he doesn't, he doesn't really get to the line in terms of like getting all the way to the rim yeah. he's he definitely settles for that mid-ranger or threes there's not a whole lot of like rim attacking which is probably his next step but he's very well rounded otherwise yeah only takes uh 12 percent of his shots uh, at the rim um all right so what's the closing lineup for this group do you think I, I will say uh there's probably more optionality possible that they just haven't utilized you know under mcmillan in particular but really all season last year even even with pierce they closed with capella basically every night um they played very traditionally last season in closing lineups when they were able to do so when capella was not in foul trouble or anything like that or they they, they tended to stay big um i don't know if that was a tendency for nate going back to you know going back to indiana where he had bigs and all that stuff but they i almost want to just tell you that's the starting lineup where it's where it's yeah. where it's young bogdanovich hunter collins and capella just because capella just forms their defense so clearly um collins and trey are just too good to not play and then you get into the wings and i would i'm just going to default to bogdanovich and hunter so it may not be that every single night but i think more often than not it'll be those five yeah and you know maybe if like gallo really has it going or reddish is uh having like a defensive game or, or you know you could see mcmillan maybe or herder is really on fire you know, kind of those three spots but you know I, I guess i shouldn't put collins in that so maybe the two and the three might be a little bit in flux but yeah i'm, I'm inclined to agree with you there um so i have a, a key questions here in my outline and one that i wanted to bring up is how much of these new rules gonna hurt trey young you know he gets these fouls on running up the back these uh so overt movements from side <laughs> to side or uh abrupt abnormal launch angles those are the buzzwords that uh Monty mccutcheon was talking about uh yesterday and a media availability as for these new rules on you know kind of bullshit foul drawing that, that trey of course has been so good at particularly in the regular season he was extremely reliant on that maybe more so than he's ever been not as much in the playoffs uh but how much do you think that's going to affect him you think he, is it going to really actually like you know, dig into his efficiency in a way we're going to notice, or is he just going to adapt and we're not going to care? I lean toward the latter. I think maybe early in the season, you might have a few high-profile, like, highlight instances where he tries to draw a foul in a similar way and doesn't get the call. Uh, that I can see a, a clip going, sort of making the rounds of Trey Young in particular. You know, famously, when they roll, when they started rolling this out in the media, it was always, you know, Trey Young, James Harden. They, they got talked about in those stories. Um, so I, I, I think he's very smart. 
and crafty. And I think that he might have to change the way that he gets to the line, but I really don't think broadly it's going to affect him all that much. I understand why people think that it might because he is a poster child for this kind of thing, but I think he'll just find the next thing. I think Trey Young is um, sort of preternatural in his foul drawing dating back to high school and college. Like he just is a, he has a gift for it. He is also very small, which helps him to accentuate contact and get, and get the benefit of the doubt in a way that like LeBron won't because LeBron is huge. Um, so yeah, I think that maybe early in the year he'll have to adjust, but overall, I think it's more of a talking point than an actual impact. Yeah, you know, I think maybe you would say so. His free throw rate, you know, uh, free throws to field goal attempt rate uh, was forty nine, a point four nine in the regular season. That dropped to a little bit under forty percent, thirty seven point three seven in the playoffs. So you know, maybe we'll see a similar type of drop to that. You know, maybe it's going to be seven free throw attempts a game instead of ten. Uh, on a a lot of nights uh but you know a lot of these are kind of the you know it's not necessarily the running up the back foul it's the drive feel the forearm on you and throw some crap up play i mean it's definitely very few of the fouls that he draws are you know getting to the rim and getting knocked down at the basket or anything like (laughs) that uh but no certainly he is very crafty so it it may affect him a little bit but i mean that's one of the big questions to me uh, about this hawks team is as good as trey young was a year ago in his age 22 season you know i probably would have had trey young during the regular season as uh, between like the 15th and 25th best player uh and you know maybe it's a little bit better than that in the playoffs but for this hawks team to really truly become a contender uh he's gonna need to take another leap he's gonna need to be a top 10 player he's gonna need to be as good as like damian lillard and maybe even beyond that because there isn't another superstar unless you think that's John Collins kind of in the pipeline on this team. So uh, Trey taking a big step forward, you know, for the long-term future of this Hawks franchise, and, you know, he's gotten better every year. It's certainly quite possible. That to me is maybe the biggest question as we look at this Hawks team of like probably, you know, being a fixture to be in the home court advantage mix in the East for, you know, the next five years. But can they get beyond that to be a threat? Trey's development still is the number one question to me. I think it's high on the list and, you know, I think he's established himself as a star at this point. But at the same time, you're right in that particularly one star teams, that star better be incredible. Like in the modern in the modern game, you know this, like most of these teams either have multiple top 10, top 15 players, or they have one that is, you know, uber, uber elite. And Trey may be able to get there, but... It, if you just look at the landscape of the league, he probably has to for the Hawks to actually be there. And there is an argument that the Hawks are so deep and they sort of have an ensemble cast beyond him where, you know, if you're doing a top 100 list, you might have five, six Hawks in the top 100. And that's fairly impressive. But it's more like, you know, Trey being up there and then your next best player might be in the 40 to 50 range. Whereas a lot of these teams have a couple guys in the top 20, 25. So yeah, I think that Trey making another leap would be helpful. It's hard to see where it comes from, like with one particular thing. I think one thing that people will always point to, and I kind of agree with this, is his three-point shooting. Last year, he kind of had a, um, he took less and also made um, a lower percentage. That's a bad combination. Um, granted, he he actually shot the heck out of the ball from mid range last year, and was uh, obviously his floater is a huge weapon. But you know, guys like Lillard, they're taking more and making more from three than Trey. And I, and I think you know he's already a good shooter, but how good of a shooter he actually is from three, both in volume and also in 
accuracy is something to unlock. And, you know, I kind of, not just me, but other people kind of asked, like, why he was taking fewer threes and never, never really got a, a full answer. Part of that might have been, you know, Nate. Part of that might just be that Trey likes to get in that floater range. But I still want him to take, you know, nine, ten threes a game. And last year he was taking, like, six and making 34%. If he's that three-point shooter from last season, it's hard to see him getting much better than he already is. Yeah, and, you know, I thought this was true in both the Knicks series and the Philly series. As much as he was able to carve those teams up and pick and roll, though, I thought it kind of, you know, that effectiveness started to wane some by the end of the Philly series as they, you know, Joel Embiid kind of started to get him figured out a little bit uh, in that drop coverage and they put Simmons on him, uh, who did a good job. Not that he shut him down, but he, he obviously, you know, could eat up that space after you'd get knocked off by the pick and roll initially. But Trey really wants to get inside the arc when he gets that separation initially on the pick and roll and also in the Bucks series uh, as well you know they did some switching against him and then he was kind of hobbled so it wasn't a great uh a great test but particularly getting into the playoffs like I think he needs to uh, and he's going to need to both take them and hit them but he's not looking to take that shot I mean it's there when he gets just gets the initial screen like the other team is in a drop coverage you know Joel Embiid is in a drop coverage and like the big excitement about Trey coming out of school part of it was like this guy's going to be able to bomb it and like but Trey doesn't he doesn't want to just take the three just coming off the screen on the pick and roll just pull up right at the three-point line you know just the normal three that a lot of these guys want to take like he'll take it when he rejects the screen you know gets into his it really fakes the guy out off the dribble and then it will pull up maybe from a couple of steps behind the line but just that kind of bread and butter okay the screen is set I come off the screen there's nobody in front of me. I'm right here at the three-point line. The guy's behind me. I'm going to shoot it. Like he doesn't want to take that shot for some reason. It seems like to me. What do you do? You have you noticed that also? No, I, I absolutely agree. And I kind of got you know yelled out a little bit, not by the team, but by fans, like for pointing this out a couple times last year. Like, look, you know, Trey. I think we all agree he's a good shooter, but he 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 wasn't hunting threes. And the results are just not that impressive from three-point range. Now, obviously, it's kind of like the Lillard corollary where, like, he's a 37, 38% three-point shooter, but yet everyone acknowledges that he's, like, an absolutely elite shooter because of, of the difficulty and the length of the shots that he takes. And Trey's a better shooter than this, but he's a career 34% three-point shooter. Like, that's, even on difficult attempts, and they are difficult attempts, he's got to make more than that. And I, and I totally agree with what you said about taking them. Last year was a career low three point attempt rate for Trey Young, and that doesn't really make sense with where the league is going, with what his skill set is. Um, and yeah, it still worked yeah. out true shooting wise because of the free throw shooting, but his effective field goal percentage was like forty nine and a half percent. Like that's not fantastic for a lead scorer. Like the free throw stuff makes up for it, but I, I agree he's got to be more aggressive hunting threes. And you know, last year it's difficult to criticize him because he was so good. But if there's one thing that I would pick apart with his offense, it probably is that I think he just needs to take and make more. Yeah. Now I think. This last year was the first year that he actually had decent players and decent shooters <laughs> around him. And yes. so, you know, I, I think he probably was thinking, hey, I want to get into the lane and, and set these guys up. But the, then the other low-hanging fruit is, you know, turn it over on 16% of his possessions. You know, that's just still way, way too high. And he's, you know, he obviously plays a high-risk sort of style with some of the passes. But just to get that down to like a league average sort of level. I mean, it's tough because, you know, we, we don't see many guys his size. You know, there's kind of Chris Paul. Uh, and that's it as far as like, you know, who are as good a passers as him and, and can throw all the passes, but he's naturally going to get, he doesn't have the passing angle the way Luca or LeBron do to throw that pass to the corner. You know, he's got to kind of duck through and, you know, he's going to get more passes deflected and stuff. So, you know, he's not going to be a, you know, 10% turnover guy, but you know, 14% would be nice. I, I think so there, but I think the lesson of all this though, is that there are a number of ways that Trey Young can still really improve. You know, it's not like, 
he can't get better. You know, we've come up with a, a bunch of realistic ways, I think, that he can get better. Uh, are you ready for some predictions here? Oh, I guess so. I'm dreading this moment, but yes, I'm ready. All right, I've been going first every time. I'm going to let you uh, go first here. Uh, wins for the Atlanta Hawks in the 21-22 season. I will be interested to see what you, what you say. Uh, I will just preface by saying this: I'm I'm surprised that the number that the over under number is as low as it is. Uh, it's yeah. four, it's 46 and a half. Uh, they, that was basically what, what they did last year. And usually, for when a team makes a long playoff run and they're young and they have easy injury stuff to fix, I thought it might be like 48 and a half like on, on a number. So I was surprised by that. Um, that I guess on the, on the favorable side that, that allowed me to say very confidently on my podcast, that I was taking the over, which fans always love. Um, man, I think I'm going to go 50 and 32. It feels like I'm being a Homer going three and a half wins over the total, but I think that is about what I think. So yeah, 50 and 32. That's where I'm going. Yeah. I'll go with 48. I think the, the 46 and a half is a little bit too low. I, I I've had a little bit more confidence about them as we've gone through it here, just because they have so much depth uh, this year. And I think, you know, it's really going to be hard for them to have games. And, and they actually had this a little bit last year, but uh, to have games where they just don't have NBA players on the floor, which, you know, some teams are just going to have that over the course of the year. And that's not going to happen. Now, obviously in games where Trey's hurt, they might struggle a little bit, but, you know, and I think their defense can be pretty solid. What do you see them ranking uh, on offense and defense? You know, cause I kind of, I think about them and I don't, I don't see them being like totally elite on either end, uh, but I see them being, you know, maybe kind of lower end of the top 10 on both ends, maybe more likely to do that on offense than defense. Or do you see their offense being better than, you know, kind of eighth in the league? Yeah, you know, last year for the full season, they were, in, at least according to cleaning the glass, they were ninth on offense, 17th on defense. And I think if I had to guess, they have more upward mobility offensively. I think they could. I mean, it wouldn't stun me if they got into the top, you know, five, six off offensively. I don't know if I project that. I think it's more like maybe where they are now, something like, you know, eighth, ninth offensively and league average defense, um, maybe a little bit better than that, um, particularly if the bench is better defensively than it was. I think, honestly, it's a huge credit to Capella more than anything, but they sure. were able to be 17th last year without their two, really their only two big physical talented defender wings on the team last season. Those guys were out for, you know, two thirds, three quarters of the season each. Um, so with those guys coming back, particularly Hunter and Reddish, yeah, I think maybe, you know, seven to nine offensively and like, you know, 14th defensively, something like that. I mean, it really comes down to what you think, how real the McMillan era Hawks were because point differential wise under McMillan, they were 52 win team last year. And that's with some injuries and some weirdness. Now, I think they were probably hotter than they probably should have been in that range, but it really comes down to which baseline you trust. Full season, McMillan sample, uh, their playoff run, all that stuff is kind of mixing together. And, you know, I think I tend to lean towards the McMillan sample more, but not quite all the way to 52, 53 wins. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're, I have confidence that they'll be a top 10 offense. I just, it really comes down to how good they are offensively and whether they can be a slight upgrade from where they were last year defensively yeah that's interesting i, I you know because i could see their offense I, I actually i i would say that this team in part due to their depth uh i would think they have kind of one of the lower ranges you know i kind of see their worst case as being still probably over 500 and then their best case and I, I don't see them getting much above like 53 or 54 i know they were the 52 under mcmillan so uh maybe maybe that's not being fair to them um uh, but I, you know i just i don't see how they get to be like really elite enough defensively to get 
you know, above kind of the low 50s in wins. Yeah, maybe there's a scenario in which they get to be a top five offense. You know, maybe that's the way that that happens. But, um, you know, and, and obviously, I think if Capella goes down, you know, the defense could start to really suffer. Then you're probably looking at a defense that's, you know, firmly in the bottom half. Oh, yeah. Uh, they have any periods there, but they have two, they have two huge swings on either end. If Trey misses time offensively, they're going to crater. And if Capella misses time defensively, they're going to crater, particularly without a Kongwu early in the season. So, you know, they have the, they have their anchor on both ends of the floor. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, not, avo- not do the, the doomsday scenarios, but they do for as deep as they are, they really can't afford to be without Trey or Capella for very long in terms of like reaching their actual, you know, projection or ceiling. Yeah. All right. Well, this was fun. Uh, I, yeah. So I, I went with 48 wins, by the way, if I, if I didn't say that. I can't remember whether I did or not. I, I entered it into the spreadsheet. So I, I almost said 49. So we were almost close. I decided to be uh, go to that round number, that big shiny round number of 50. So I, I decided to lean there and uh, get more PR. No, but I, I tend to, I think that the over is one of me. I mean, I know this is not my segment, but uh, the over on the Hawks would be one of my best bets this season. If I had to do the segment that you and Danny did, mm. I would, I would, I would say over on the Hawks. I think the number's just too low. I, I was surprised to see how how low it was, and they have so much depth that you can be fairly confident. I think in the over, even if you get some hiccups along the way. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, where can we keep up with uh, your coverage this year, Brad? Uh, first, uh, thanks for having me. Um, you can find me at BT Roland on Twitter. I host the Locked on Hawks podcast, which I've been doing for, I guess this is my sixth full season doing that, which is a long time. Wow. Uh, I used to uh, run Peachtree Hoops. I'm now retired from that, but I'm writing at Dime on Uproxx about the Hawks and the NBA and the NBA drafts and all that stuff. So the uh, best place to find me is at BT Roland, but uh, please check out the Locked on Hawks podcast as well. All right. And... Uh... Obviously, continue to check out Dunked on Prime as well. We'll be back next week with a ton more of these season outlooks. We'll talk to you all then. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 